Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. on the east coast uh for everybody else will it will soon be tomorrow all right this is the other side of midnight it's the first hour of our last show of the week you know what that means that means it's time for the other side of midnight proudly presents ask frank ask frank anything ask frank anything ask frank anything what do you have questions about what are you genuinely curious about Ideally, it should be something that I can answer, not necessarily the ultimate answer to life, the universe, and everything. But if you have a question about who my third grade teacher was, what my favorite baseball team is, or uh, some of my preferred omelet stylings, I am the man to answer that. If you have a question about about politics, Atlantic City, organized crime, uh, something that I've experienced, something about the radio business in general, uh, cinema, cocktails, you name it. Hypothetical scenarios, those always end up in some fun questions. Now's the time to ask it. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. We have two open lines right now, which they you should act if you are curious about something because these lines tend to get filled very quickly. Whatever you have questions about, now is the time. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with John on Long Island. Hello, John. Hey, Frank, when you were show prepping with uh, with William Shatner, was there like any questions that he may request to do not ask him, like don't ask him about William Shatner or George Takai? Any like that came across between each other or do you have to show him your questions and mm-hmm. he approved them? What was the interaction with that? Because you know, obviously a big time actor, so I was curious. Uh, no, there was nothing that was uh, that was off limits at all. In fact, I specifically asked that question. Is there anything that you want to want me to avoid asking you? And he said, no, ask me whatever you want and whatever uh, questions you think are interesting from the audience. You know, the thing is. He, you know, he gives long answers and he puts on basically a show, right, with these questions. So I'm basically a vehicle to help him get from one story to the next. So you don't have an opportunity to ask that many. Uh, There's at most maybe I got to ask 20 questions because he gives very, very long stories. May I add a question to you? I mean, this guy's heard, he's heard it all. And I was wondering, like, as he gets frustrated with these, you know, the same answers he's heard the last 60 years, I wonder about that. And just one more thing, I commend you, you know, to this tremendous thing that you did to interview a you know, pivotal guy like that in, in the last, you know, you know, last few years, you know, it's tremendous. So kudos to you with that. Well, thank you, John. Very kind of you. Yeah, he does. There are a couple of questions that he gets repeatedly, and he has a funny story about that, which I won't share on the radio because I don't want to ruin it for people that haven't seen the show yet. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. 
Hey, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um, this is a Star Trek-related question. Okay. Now, imagine that you're uh, in the future, in a Star Trek scenario, in the Star Trek universe. If first contact was going to happen, which alien would you prefer to be the first contact with, and which one would be the worst? And I'm just going to uh, put this in, um, disqualifying the Vulcans, because that's who first contact was with. And the Borg, because that's probably the easiest one to say would be the right. worst. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, all right. So let's see. The best first contact um, uh, scenario. Let me think here. In the Star Trek universe and the worst. All right. Well, the worst I'm going to say is going to be probably the uh, species uh, 864, uh, 8672 from uh, Star Trek Voyager. Do you remember them? They're the ones that even yes. the Borg was afraid of. So they seem pretty pretty rough. Uh, 8472, that was it. Species 8472. So that's my least um, favorite first contact scenario. In terms of the best first contact scenario, I'm going to say the – I'm going to say the Bajorans. They seem pretty pretty innocuous uh, for the most part. And um, I said – no, not the Bajorans. Excuse me. The Trill. The trill uh, seem to be a species that are, by and large, pretty friendly. And because they've been around so long in various different uh, different scenarios, I think they probably have a lot of wisdom to pass on uh, because they've been around for hundreds or if not thousands of years, each person. So I'm going to say the uh, the tr- the trill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those are all good choices. I agree with you. Thanks, thank, Frank. Thank you, David. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222, whatever you have questions about. Now is the time to ask them. Uh, Phyllis is in Queens. Hello, Phyllis. Hi. How Hi. are you, Frank? Good. Thanks. Um, I have a question about Trump. Mm-hmm. I really want him to win. And I just wondered, what do you think if he and DeSantis would run together as a team? Do you think that would work? And then we'd have a strong Republican candidate and we could win. Well, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, for a few reasons. Most notably is they both are from the same state and uh, the 12th Amendment does not allow you to, you can't have a president and a vice president from the same state. So oh. you uh, you could, now one of them could move, right? Now obviously mm-hmm. DeSantis is not going to move because he's the governor of Florida. He'd have to right. give up his job. <laughs> Trump could move. He's got residences in New Jersey and he could certainly move back to Trump Tower in New York. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I I don't see Trump, uh, a guy that likes to be seen as calling the shots, I don't see him giving up his what he's claimed as his state of residence in order to take on Ron DeSantis. I, I don't think that's in keeping with his with his ego, quite frankly, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or and quite honestly, he probably is saving so much money in taxes and cost of living uh-huh. being a Florida resident that yeah. I can't see him changing his state of oh. residence uh, mm-hmm. to take on DeSantis. I think there are a lot of good potential running mates for Trump. I mean, uh, look, oh, yeah. I, I, I think, do you think is a good one? Then? Well, I mean, look, I'm quite fond of Tulsi Gabbard. I think she would mm-hmm. be a great pick. I think somebody like Christy Noem would be a great uh, running mate, the governor of South Dakota. I think someone like, uh, uh, you know, like uh, Tim Scott of South Carolina mm-hmm. would be a, a very good running mate for him. Uh-huh. I, I think okay. there are, I think somebody like uh, former Senator uh, and uh, Scott Brown would be a good running mate for him. Okay, I think, so there, are, there, are I think there are a lot of good running mates out there for oh, him. OK, good. Okay. Thank, thank you, Phyllis. Thank it's, you. A, it's a good question. And it's one I think a lot of people don't partic- don't necessarily realize. 800-848-9222. Brandon is in New Jersey. Hello, Brandon. 
Hey, Frank, I'm at work, so I'm going to hang up once I'm done. But uh, you seem like a good sport. I mean, whether it's uh, your staff drawing on your face or the darker side of midnight or, you know, Curtis and Avery uh, chopping you up on their program over the weekend, I just want to know, uh, you know, how do you, uh, how do you deal with them making you the butt of their jokes? And do you uh, self-sabotage yourself when you say, you know, things like you might want to commit suicide if you can't remember – um, Joe Piscopo's kids or read letters about how you sound like a menstruating woman. Huh. Uh, no, I certainly don't <laughs> self-sabotage. Uh, you know, in terms of, and thanks, Brendan, I, I haven't heard the um, the darker side of Midnight, but in terms of the Curtis and Avery <laughs> show, and if people listening around the country, uh, it's a show that airs on WABC on the uh, on the weekends, um, the, the, and they spend a lot of time on me Sunday mornings in the 4 a.m. hour. When I do hear it, and I try to be asleep at that hour, but you can't always be asleep because it's tough to just snap back to those normal sleep hours. It's hysterical. It's the funniest thing that I've heard in a long time. And it's difficult to be upset when um, when it's so funny, uh, honestly. And honestly, Curtis and I are so close and have been through so much together that uh, anything that really? um, that he's critical of, I mean, I know it's coming from a very good place. It's not as if, you know, Curtis is an enemy of mine that uh, that he's that, you know, that he's criticizing me. You know, it's a friend. I mean, it's like if you can criticize your brother or your 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 cousin, but you don't want a stranger doing it. So I um, I don't take any of it personally, as long as it's funny. And even if it's not, you know, who cares? And also Curtis's show has a very wide audience on the uh, on the weekend and if he wants to spend a full hour of that highlighting our show and promoting it more power to him i wish he'd make all 4 hours uh dedicated to making fun of me so i think uh, i think that's great i don't have a problem with it at all 800-848-9222 what is your question pete hi frank uh which of these spock attributes would you like to have spock intelligence mind meld abilities plus Neck pinch or Spock strength? Ooh, these are all good ones. All right, so I got intelligence, mind meld abilities, uh, neck pinch or strength. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Um, let's see here. I am going to say, hmm. I'm going to go with intelligence. I think that's, uh, you know, if you gave me the option of his lifespan, I would take his lifespan. But since you didn't, I'm going to go with intelligence. I I don't find myself having a big need for the Vulcan neck pinch too often. I, um, you know, I always watch the episodes where he does the mind meld. And it always looks like it takes a lot out of him. It looks like it's a very emotionally jarring thing for him, a very trying thing for him. So I'm going to eliminate that. And as far as uh, as strength goes, look, I, I'd like to be, that would be my second pick i'd like to be stronger uh but uh do i really have a need for spock like strength i don't know that i do so i'm going with intelligence thank you 800-848-9222 by the way we will come up with a um we will give a prize to whomever comes up with the best and the most creative question this hour so if you call in with a creative question in the eyes of uh, matt blaze alex barnard and kenneth we will give you a very I don't know, kind of cool prize. 800-848-9222. Frankie is in Brooklyn. Hello, Frankie. Yeah, Frankie. Uh, remember when that nut job uh, broke uh, Donald Trump's uh, star on the Hollywood Right, yeah, it thing? happened a couple times. Did ever, yeah, did he ever fix it? 
They did fix it. I think um, – so, yeah, it is fixed. So uh, I think I read that they were – they were sectioning it off um, or something, but uh, so that it wouldn't happen again. Um, but uh, yeah, so they didn't remove it. They didn't remove it. It is it is repaired, and um, yeah, no, it, it is actually no. Yeah, it's not sectioned off. You can go see it today. Oh, so it's repaired and everything, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is repaired. It's all good. Um, you can see it. It's, right, it's been there for uh, since uh, April of 2021. 800-848-9222. Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank. Thanks for taking the call. So I sure. got two short questions, and the first one is um, if when you re- um, meet a frequent radio caller to your program, um, what's what overall – are you surprised by how they come across in real life? Uh, like, do you expect their personalities overall to be like they are and how they how they look? Because, you know, usually when you talk to a person after a certain amount of time, you have a vision of how they look. You're usually surprised by once you meet them by how they look and their personality. And the second one is what was your most awkward radio call with a caller on your program since you started the show? Well, uh, so there's a lot going on there. There was a long way to go here. For, so the first question is, am I ever surprised at what a caller looks like? Is that the first question? No. Overall, when you meet callers that call into your program, are they like you expected them to be in real life once uh, you meet I'll, them in person? I'll say yes. I, I don't remember being really re- surprised too often. And the second caller is the most awkward encounter. Call you've ever, caller you've ever had on your show since you – started this program of the other side of midnight most awkward or an, caller. um yeah. see call, call call most awkward call um i wouldn't i don't know about the most awkward call you know i mean the only thing I, yeah I, in terms of awkwardness uh, the like sometimes if somebody uh said you know says something really uh profane and repeatedly i'm just worried if we can dump it uh quickly enough so but is that awkward i don't know i really i'd have to think um uh, in terms of an awkward call um i remember when you know there was one caller that was very that was very uh, insulting when um when my wife was with child and uh, made a remark about how he hoped my son would be developmentally disabled or something. Uh, that was really disturbing. I certainly wouldn't say it was uh, awkward, but it was very, um, I don't know, it certainly wasn't nice. But in terms of awkward, to me, when I think of awkward, it's um, you're at a wedding and, um, you know, you realize that, uh, like that episode of Seinfeld where Elaine realizes that she used to go out with the groom. That's awkward, Right. But in terms of a caller on the radio, I don't remember. I don't remember experiencing a level of awkwardness that comes to mind. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. We're in the midst of an ask Frank anything, whatever you have questions about, make them good. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. This is uh, American Girl, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, This was a selection from Jen Kearns, uh, who is a nationally syndicated talk show hostess in her own right. And uh, she's been a guest on this show, and she's a a wonderful person, a longtime political analyst as well, and she's been a political consultant from time to time. This was uh, her birthday bumper music selection. Happy birthday to you, Jen Kearns. All right. We are in the midst of... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. anything. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Hi, Robert. Who decides what the music on hold is during the news breaks? Uh, uh, whoever it is has good taste. Yeah, I that think. is uh, Matt Blaze. Do you have anybody helping you with that, Matt Blaze, or is that all just you? That is all me. That's all Matt Blaze. Yeah, I, he does have some good uh, some good musical selections there. And uh, I will mention, just though, to pat myself on the back, until I urged Matt Blaze to start playing music during the top of the hour breaks for the hold people. There was no music. It was just dead air. So you might get, you can credit Matt Blaze for the music that he selects, but you have to credit me for the fact that music exists. 800-848-9222. Uh, John is in East Chester. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. How are you doing? I, I'm fine, John. I hope you're fine, too. I am fine. I love listening to you guys. My Thank question you. is, how do you feel about the everybody saying that they're watching you? The Japan is watching you on TikTok. Um, China, uh, China, yeah. Um, how do you feel about that? Because I totally agree. But then you know, when I say it to my friends, they think I'm crazy. So, what do you think? Well, I, I think it's uh, look. I don't know if they're actually watching you in real time. What you're doing and. Uh, that kind of a thing. I think it's more of a situation where they have your data and they're using your data for any number of really nefarious purposes. Could be it could be, you know, it's just I, I don't know. I mean, I hesitate to even conjecture what the worst scenarios are that they could use your personal data for. But I don't want a company that owes its existence to the Chinese government to have my phone number, my contacts of all my friends and families and my my pictures and everything else. That's the last thing I would ever put on my phone in 100 years. 800-848-9222. We're doing an Ask Frank Anything, answering your questions on a subject. Two open lines if you want to call in with a question. Bob in New Jersey, what's your question? Hey, Frank, I know you're very fond of going to Atlantic City. Indeed. I was I was just wondering if you ever took the tour and heard the largest pipe organ in the world, which is on the boardwalk in Boardwalk Hall. I have indeed. In fact, in uh, 2019, I had all my guests from my annual New Year's Eve Eve party uh, do a tour that was led by my friend AC Mike Lopez, who uh, and uh, he showed us all the sort. We did a whole Boardwalk tour, and then it culminated in a tour of Boardwalk Hall. And we went in there, and they were kind enough to show us and play for us the the pipe organ, and it was magical. It was wonderful, and I highly recommend 
for anyone uh, that they uh, have an opportunity to not only just see it, but if they can hear it, it was uh, terrific. And it's uh, it's really a magical place, Atlantic City, with so much history. And uh, I highly recommend that if people have the chance, they they take that tour. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Mike the Millennial is in Denver. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. Thank you for taking my call. Really enjoying the segment tonight. Sure. Um, so just a quick question. Um, so have you ever had um, a specific job interview that you feel went specifically really good? And if so, how do you what do you feel you did to make that job interview go good? Oh, that's a great question. Let me think here. Um, a job interview that went well. Um, I let me think. I um, honestly, the only one that comes to mind that I remember thinking I haven't been on a lot of job interviews, honestly, but the only one that I remember thinking went really well. I mean, I'm, yeah, the only one that I remember thinking went really well was when uh, I happened to have a friend and a frequent collaborator on the radio that bought the radio station that I wanted to work at, right? And the person, the general manager and the program director at that radio station, I, they were nice to me because they knew that their boss was someone that I had a relationship with. So I thought that one went really well. And I know it's not the practical advice that you're looking for, but I'll be honest, I haven't been on a lot of job interviews, uh, honestly. Um, so I, I wish I had a better answer, but I don't. 800-848-9222, one open line if you, want to, if you have a question. Greg is in Arizona. Hello, Greg. Hey, uh, hi, Frank. Uh, this is about a movie. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's in, back to the 1990s, and I think of this every five years, and, and we, my wife and I cannot find it. We Google it. We're on IMDb. So I'm going to give you a scene from a movie. I think it was Christina Ritchie in one of those 90s IFC you know, kind of movies, and she's in a bathtub, slash her wrist, and she's bleeding out with a song in the background by Nielsen, I Can't Live Without You. Do you remember that movie, or do you know what movie that is? I I don't remember um, the I don't remember the movie. Uh, I didn't. I don't think I saw the. I don't think I saw the movie. But uh, I'm trying to. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I I I didn't see that. I like Christina Ricci, but um, I don't remember seeing a scene like that with that uh, with that kind of uh, with that kind of music in the background. Yeah, you know the song though, right? Nielsen from the early seventies. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and and I, I we maybe it wasn't her, and that's what we can't figure out. So anyway, out of the millions of listeners, someone might know it. So maybe I'll, I'll keep listening and see if someone else, one of the listeners, knows what movie. But it might not be her. But but it was definitely a suicide scene in the bathtub with that song. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure it was her. Yeah, I, I um, the only the only thing that comes up on Google is a, a film is something called Now and Then. But again, not having seen the movie. I uh, I I don't uh, I can't say anything about whether that's accurate or or not. So um, yeah, if anybody knows, feel free to uh, feel free to email me frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. All right, Leo is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, it's pretty obvious is that female juror from uh, Georgia against uh, Trump. Uh, she's doing tour through the through different interviews, and she's ruining the case. Do you think that there's a chance that she actually is more acting the very yuppie girl 
and she's actually Trump supporter. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I really I have no idea what her politics are. I don't think she's intentionally sabotaging the case. I think she's she enjoyed being on television and she was trying to uh, give as much information as she could without uh, crossing the line. But it does look to me, based on some of the legal analysis that I read, that she did cross the line. But the thing is, that's a special grand jury in Georgia. So even if that special grand jury recommends charges for certain people you still have to go to a regular grand jury to issue the indictments, as I understand it. And uh, that's done in conjunction with the DA's office there. So uh, I doubt that she's a secret Trump supporter, but I have no idea what her politics are in all candor. 800-848-9222. John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Okay, Frank, what is your, who is your favorite Starship captain not named James T. Kirk? Um, that's a great question. My favorite starship captain, not named Kirk. I think, look, I'm quite fond of Picard, uh, but if I had to pick, I think I might, I like them all, obviously. They're great characters, all of them. Um, Janeway and, uh, I, you know, I, I have not seen Strange New Worlds and I haven't seen Discovery. So I'm going to omit them from the discussion. Um, and uh, I do like Pike as a character, but I'm going to say um, it's Cisco because I feel like Cisco is a good mix of the 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 diplomat that Picard is and sort of the fighter that Kirk is. So I'm going to say Cisco for those reasons. But I like them all. I like them all. 800-848-9222. Bert is in Ukraine. Hello, Bert. Hello, Frank. Um, I hope you don't mind a question about Curtis, but um, uh, I want to know what was how was it the first time? You met him the first time you met him face to face, and the first time, the first day that you worked with him. You know, I, I I'm listening to you because because of Curtis, <laughs> and you stand on your own merit, and I listen to you regularly now. But um, yeah, those two questions, if you don't mind um, um, answering. Yeah, you know, actually, and that comes back to uh, another question that um, that somebody else asked. I met Curtis. I was I was uh, doing an interview to get an internship. At the radio station that Curtis worked at at the time, and I I was doing an interview with the program director of that station, Phil Boyce, and it went really well. And Phil was poised to, um, you know, give me this internship, but uh, I think he was giving it to anybody that was willing to come in and work those hours. And um, Curtis was walking down the hallways, and I was a big fan of Curtis, obviously. I listened to him all the time. And uh, Phil shouts to Curtis, you know, hey, um, hey, Curtis, come in here. And then Curtis came in, and uh, I, we chatted for a few minutes. And uh, basically, you know, we, we made small talk about, uh, about Staten Island and a bunch of other things. That was the first time I met him is uh, at that uh, job interview. And then um, the, the first time – the first – Working with him was, I don't know, it was kind of uneventful. I mean, I was doing mostly administrative stuff. I think I was organizing photographs for him to sign to listeners. And, um, you know, so I wish, uh, yeah, I wish I had a better story about meeting him. But he just got kind of called into the office that I was doing a job interview in. Okay. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Bert. 800-848-9222. Igor is in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Yeah, greetings, Frank. Uh, you know, I've listened to the uh, darker side of midnight, and uh, you know, I, I think that Matt and uh, and Ken and Alex they seem to enjoy each other's company, and uh, and I think they like you too as well, despite sometimes the razzing they give you. So, so here's my question: Have you are you aware of programs, of different stations, different times you've 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 observed 
where maybe the production staff doesn't like each other or doesn't like the on-air talent? Does it always get reflected in a poor on-air product or, or sometimes maybe would the listeners actually be surprised to know that the staff and the on-air talent can't stand each other? Um, so let me answer the uh, – so that's a three-part question. I'm going to do my best to to answer each of them as it, uh, as it came. So is it um, – the first part of your question was have I noticed instances where the staff and the on, – the on-air staff and the behind-the-scenes staff don't get along? Answer is yes, many times. Uh, in, the best example is Imus. I mean everybody that worked on that Imus show – could not stand him. I mean, really. And when I say that it was not that they didn't like him, there was antipathy. And I, I hate to, uh, you know, I have no qualms about sharing the story now because everyone involved has passed away. But I remember when I first started working with Bernard McGurk, when they first came to WABC, he was producing the Imus show. And he basically said to me, I wish Imus was dead. I said, really? You've worked with him this long? You really wish that he was dead? You, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't be uh, upset about that at all? He said, except for some concern about my own future, absolutely not. The guy is a miserable person who has uh, brought, you know, um, nothing but um, re- anger, resentment, and contempt from everybody that's ever known him or worked with him. I wish he was dead. And I'll tell you, the show was wildly successful, not only successful ratings-wise, but successful revenue-wise. So I think that answers the second part of your question, that no, it's not always reflective of the, uh, you know, of the on-air product. And then the, the third part of your question, what was that? No, I think you got it, Frank. Okay, and, yeah. uh, I so that's the it. best yeah, example that I could think of. There's been other shows as well, but that's the most pronounced example. I mean, there was not a person on that Imus show that liked him. I mean, when I say not a person, not a person. And, uh, I mean, the engineers, the the call screener, they couldn't stand him. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Hello Paul. Hello, Frank. Uh, my question would have to do with the term of the mob term, the capo, de tutti capo. Mm-hmm. Would they say that's the boss of bosses? Right. And then if John Gotti was, like, say, in charge of the Gotti family, he wouldn't be the capo, de tutti capo. Would they say who it is or is he kept secret? So I, I'm not I'm not sure I understand the question. Right. So wh- who exactly is the capo de tutti capo? Like there, the there, there, there is none. There is none uh, right now. That, no. uh, yeah, there, there is none. I mean, if you look at if you're talking about the five crime families in the New York area, or even you know all you know whatever they say there are 26 mafia families nationwide. There's no person that um, there's no person that uh, is the is uh, has that title. There, there is uh, there's really a lot of speculation about whether there's even been a commission meeting in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. So as far as that role goes, um, you know, there is no person. I'm not sure I understand your question about John Gotti, though. The, well, I was just wondering if he would be like the, you know, the capo of no, the Gotti certainly family. Not. No, the other mob bosses did not, for the most part, uh, the Bonanno family was the exception. But the other New York mafia bosses did not like John Gotti, by and large, because of how he became the boss. He didn't become the boss the way the other bosses of his era came to be the boss. He came to be the boss by um, by killing 
Paul Castellano, the boss of the Gambino crime family. And it was an unsanctioned killing. It wasn't sanctioned by the commission. So all these other bosses say, wait a minute. Uh, we don't want to be too close to this guy because we don't want somebody in our crew killing us in an unsanctioned manner. So, no, uh, they absolutely, especially Vincent Chinjiganti, viewed John Gotti very much as a threat to the whole mafia order of things. And uh, there's some evidence that uh, Vinny Giganti actually at one point supported an assassination attempt in uh, against John Gotti in retribution for that. But, no, it would certainly not be uh, John Gotti, 800-848-9222. Roberto is in White Plains. Hello, Roberto. Yes, I know him. He's a good fellow, like that Roberto. He really is. Listen, what did you think of Joe Franklin's office? He had several, the 42nd Street and I think the 44th Street, whatever it was. Were you shocked when you saw it? And also, did you know, did you know Robert Franklin? Uh, Robert Franklin? No. Who was Robert Flank- yeah. Franklin? He was a relative of his. He used to hang out once in a while, help him clean his office. Uh, no, I, I knew a lot of the folks that uh, that hung out there. Uh, but um, no, I never I knew Hector. I knew, uh, you know, a, a bunch of the other folks that would hang out there and I would hang out there. But no, I never knew a, a Robert Franklin. Um, but no, I wasn't shocked because I'd seen the and I would hang out at the uh, the office on 43rd Street from uh, yeah. yeah from about the year 2000 till the time he passed away which i guess was uh, 2015 or 2016 uh the 300 west 43rd street that's the one that i used to hang out at and he had uh, two different sixth floor it was like a warehouse well, elevator he, he you had, went up in yeah, he had yeah. two different offices uh, at that time because there was some renovation. And um, no, I wasn't shocked because I'd seen images of the of the office on television before. So it basically looked exactly like, exactly like how it looked on television. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Uh, Rogers in Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, hi, thanks. Uh, Sometimes I've been wondering for a while, um, I'm assuming, first of all, that Carlo helped set up Sonny in, uh, in Godfather 1 to get uh, knocked off. Now, my question is this. Something I can't figure out doesn't make any sense. Why would um, uh, another crime family need help to knock off Sonny? Need, need him to be set up because Sonny seems to come and go as he pleases in that non chauffeur uh, Goferable car. And so, why would they need help from, from, from some low on the totem pole like Carlo uh, if they wanted to get him? I can't understand what that. Well, uh, first of all, uh, keep in mind it's fiction, right? That's number one, right? We're talking a fictional book and a fictional movie. Second, uh, Carlo may have been um, low on the totem pole, but Carlo's role in setting up Sonny was um, it was getting his it was getting um, Sonny's sister, Connie, played by Talia Shire, to react and to call Sonny and knowing how, that Sonny was a hothead, knowing that he, um, you know, it was it was knowing that he would go uh, after uh, Carlo because Carlo beat up his sister. So 
so they did, you know, it was possible to see Sonny, but remember, there had been an assassination attempt on Vito Corleone that was unsuccessful, and it wasn't for lack of access to Vito Corleone, and that was when they had Paulie, the driver, uh, working with them as well. I think the situation with Sonny is not only did they not want a repeat of the Vito Corleone botched assassination attempt, but you had a situation where Sonny was seen almost like Rasputin, someone that they would was so strong and so virile that they would not take any chances with him. That's why there's not one gunman, there's not two. It looks like there's 20 gunmen all firing bullets into him long after he's got to be dead. It looked that he was this Rasputin like figure that they thought would be able to survive anything, bounce back from anything, so they were not going to take any chances, so they wanted to make sure that he was going to react rashly and rush out of there without any security detail, without any guards, which at the height of a mafia war, at least as depicted in The Godfather, was pretty unlikely and unusual. So it was the it was not Carlo's status in the mob family. It was his status as a member of the Corleone family, which helped him. Uh, meaning, you know, the fact that he was Sonny's brother-in-law. 800-848-9222. Gio is in Staten Island. Hello, Gio. Hello, Frank. Uh, uh, Being a retired fireman, I like to say Matt Blaze is on fire. Oh, very good. Well done. Um, Being the fact I'm a truck driver, I'd like to know what you think of why, why in heaven's name, are trucks and buses not allowed to be in the third lane, which I think is ridiculous, and it impedes traffic. Uh, The third lane, you know, when you say the third lane, what's the third lane? Uh, That's the uh, outer lane, the fast lane. Yeah, I'll be honest, I didn't know that, and I've never thought about it, but uh, I will... Well, there's signs signs all over uh, the Staten Island Expressway and all over the country. Yeah, I, I yeah I don't know, Gio. I'll look into it, but it's not something I I know much about. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Eddie is in Nassau. Hello, Eddie. Yes. Good morning. Salutations uh, to you, Frank, and the cat, Mister Kestamatidis gang. Look, a question about William Shatner when he faced off against the Gorn. It reminded me of what's the difference between alligators and crocodiles, and do you know uh, Spock's blood type? I don't remember uh, Spock's blood type. I know that was mentioned once, but um, I, I I can't answer that. Uh, you you care to tell us? T negative. T negative. I knew I was going to say T something. Uh, I my understanding with alligators and crocodile, and I know very little about uh, zoology. But I think it has to do with their snout. One of them has a wider snout, and uh, one of them has sort of a U-shaped snout. One of them has a V-shaped snout. I don't remember which one is which, though. I couldn't tell you uh, which one's which. Thank you, though, Eddie. 800-848-9222. This is, you know, a pretty tame group of questions so far. So we have three open lines. I can't speak for this crew here, Matt Blaze, etc., but I don't know that there's any question that's going to get the prize so far. So if you have a question that's out of the box, that's uh, unusual, that makes people think, the kind of question that they'll hear and then ask to their family and friends over the weekend, give me a call and let me know. 800-848-9222. I guess the best question, in my opinion so far, was uh, Igor's question about um, 
you know, radio teams that don't get along. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, Mr. Rano, how you be? Good. Listen, if you had to go get rid of one of your support staff there, which one's going to be? I'm joking. I just want to be controversial. My question is this. Mets invite you down for spring training. What position would you play? What would your walk-up music be? And what would your number be? Um, my number would be number eight. My position would be first base. And my uh, walk-up music would be Enter Sandman. All right. Good uh, thank you, Al. All right. 800-848-9222. open lines. Four open lines. Uh, if you have a question about anything at all, we'll try and get to it in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Should I stay or should I go? Another Jen Kearns selection as we celebrate her birthday on uh, Jen Kearns' birthday bumper music Friday. Uh, We're also doing an Ask Frank Anything where we're giving you an opportunity to ask questions about anything that you're genuinely curious about. Let me know what it is. 800-848-9222. William is in Asbury Park. Hello, William. Hello. Hello. So the first time... I went to New York. The first thing I wanted to do was get a slice. So we went to, uh, we got a, I think it was a, some, some burritos. Is that the way you pronounce it? And I, I, uh, I'm not sure what, what you're yeah, trying to pronounce, I, so I well, can't tell so, you. So we got a slice, I got a slice of pizza. And right. And I William, was like, what, well, this is what, what's, what's your question here? Just cause I want to get to a lot of people here. Okay. Uh, is there ever a time where you ate a food that you could eat anywhere but you went to where the food was native to, and you were like, wow, this is what it's supposed to be like. This is a lot different than than what I know. That is a great question. Um, let's see. You know, I'm trying to think, you know, um, I always do try to go with the local delicacies, but I'm trying to think when, um, hmm, um, you know, I don't, um, I, I don't think so, honestly. I mean, I've never been to Chicago, so I've never tried a Chicago style slice. I've been to um, I've been to Hawaii. I had some of the nice seafood that they had there, but what it didn't, you know, I wouldn't say, "Wow, this is what seafood is supposed to taste like." No, uh, I went to I went to France as a child. I didn't care for the food there, so I that wouldn't apply. No, I'm going to say no. I mean, look, that's the thing that's so great about living in New York is that the food in New York is so much better than everywhere else, in my opinion. The Italian food's better than the Italian food in Italy, in in my opinion. Um, the uh, the Mexican food in New York, I think, is better than the Mexican food that I've had in Mexico. I'm sure there are places that offer better Mexican food than New York. Uh, but um, 
I really think that we have the best kind of not only just ethnic food, but every type of food in New York. So, no, I've never been to a place and said, wow, oh, that's what a that's what a falafel is supposed to taste like. No, I, that's not happened with me. 800-848-9222. Uh, let's say hello to Larry on Long Island. Hello, Larry. Frank, simple question. Is there one, without naming names, one regular caller who calls every night that you are sick and tired of hearing from? Um, I mean, no, there's not one. There's more than one. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, there's not one. There's uh, There are several. 800-848-9222. And if you don't want me to name them, I, I won't. But I think... You you could probably guess. There are probably several of the ones that annoy you as well. Frederick's in Brooklyn. Hello, Frederick. Yes, uh, uh, yes, Frank. Uh, this is uh, this is. I'm curious to know. Seeing that the sky um, is part of uh, a part is part of Earth's atmosphere, and I'm curious to know: Does the sky um, touches make contact with the ground? With the surface of the earth. I, I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm not I'm not following you. It, it, does the what make contact with the ground? The sky, the sky, which is part of the, the earth's atmosphere, does it um, make contact? Actual contact to this up to the surface of the of the earth I, around the edges of the earth. It's a good question. I, I don't know. Uh, I I I'm not, I don't know that I'm qualified to answer that one. We'll put it on the list for Doctor Sky. Uh, another call screening gem by uh, by Kenneth there. 800-848-9222. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hello, Frank. Hi. I'd like to know, it's a two-part question. Okay. I'd like to know if you think whether if Jeff Sessions did not lobby under Trump for the attorney general job, number one, whether Rudy would have gotten it. And number two, if Rudy would have gotten it, would the course of history been changed and Trump still been still been a second term president? Well, the first question you really uh, there's no way to know uh, because uh, that's a question only Trump can answer. I uh, I think maybe right, but remember Chris Christie was running the transition. He was high on Chris Christie for a time. Uh, I don't know, and Rudy seemed more interested in the Secretary of State position. Uh, but um, so I have no idea on the first one. On the second one, no, I, I don't think that the um, I, I think the the Mueller probe and the Russia collusion investigation. I don't think that's what hurt Trump. I think the fact that he came out of that Mueller probe with without being charged and the fact that uh, there was really no American that was charged with colluding with Russia as a result of that probe, not a single one, not Paul Manafort, not Michael Flynn, not Roger Stone, not George Papadopoulos. Um, the fact that it really made it look like such a gigantic waste of time. And I think it it said to a lot of Trump supporters, yeah, OK, they found they went a year and a half with this investigation, a limitless amount of money. And that's what they came up with. So, no, I think um, I, I think that uh, had COVID not happened. And had Trump not handled some aspects of the COVID investigation the way that he did, uh, not investigation, but the COVID lockdowns the way that he did, then maybe you would have seen a, 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 a second Trump term. But no, I don't think it was because of the Mueller probe, which is clearly what you're what you're implying. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Okay. Would you be willing under any circumstance to have to tell the absolute truth for the rest of your life, say for, you know, to get into heaven? 
And did Sid's mom call the other day? Uh, did I we get an answer on, on uh, Sid's mom? <laughs> I, I don't understand why it's so tough to get. Oh, wait, okay, um, we do have an answer on Sid's mom. And yeah, oh, oh no, we don't have an answer on Sid's mom. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why we uh, we can't get an answer on uh, on Sid's mom. Uh, I, I, guess, I guess he didn't want to answer the, the question. But um, the uh, yeah, I would absolutely if it means a guarantee of getting into heaven, I would happily make that deal to always always tell the truth. I always try to tell the truth anyway. But, um, you know, if you're talking like Jim Carrey style, liar, liar, uh, telling the truth in order to get into heaven. Absolutely. I would absolutely do that. 800-848-9222. Edna is in Manhattan. Hello, Edna. Edna? All right, Edna. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Garden City. Hello, Mark. How are you, Frank? Good. Frank, um, earlier tonight you mentioned that everybody that worked for IMIS um, really couldn't stand him to a man or to a person. Do you know what the reason for that was? What do you know about that? Well, I mean, it's because he would mistreat people, because he would insult people. He would curse at them. He would he was rude to them. He was so unappreciative of them working on the show. Uh, I um, I mean, that's that's basically he was just not a nice person. And I think that's really it. You know, what's interesting, Frank. If you listen to that show, which I used to listen to that show for years, for many years, um, they'd be laughing hysterically on there at certain – like Imus would be laughing hysterically, Bernie would. They'd be cracking up at some of the things. Some of them were really funny. And uh, meanwhile, behind the scenes, you're saying they really couldn't stand him whatsoever. Yeah, and it goes to show you, you know, what professionals they all were. But that's not unusual in radio. You know, there were days, you know, uh, there are a lot of radio partnerships where the two people don't get along or didn't like one another, and they uh, sound on the radio like they're having a a gay old time. So that's not unusual. Uh, The level of dislike for for the, the that the staff had for the host for such a long time that was the the most pronounced example I've ever seen 800-848-9222 Joe is in the Bronx hello Joe Hey Frank how are you Good Good I got a godfather question I'm ready uh, I'm thinking maybe you should notice um yeah the only non-fictional names for characters in the godfather um Mainly Godfather Two, um, who uh, really existed. In other words, so is this a trivia question? The last names. It's sort of, kind of, but it concentrates on Godfather Two. All right. Well, so I'm thinking uh, you got uh, Batista right in Cuba, right? Well, yeah. Okay, yeah, and then uh, the talking about more. In right, the just US. tell us because we only have a minute here, Joe. Just tell us. Okay. Yeah, the Rosado brothers. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great question. Edna in Manhattan will try you again. Hello. Hello, Frank. Hi. <laughs> I have a uh, good question for you, I think. Okay. Let's say you had an enormous opportunity to go take a flight into space, complimentary mm. with Shatner, but there's a bit of a problem. The ship is not guaranteed to return back to Earth. What would you do? No, I mean, look, obviously, I guess nothing is guaranteed, right? But uh, I'd like, I um, w- well, I guess I would want to know the likelihood of coming back to Earth. If it was... Okay, let, yeah. okay let's say there is, is insufficient fuel for the round trip. Well, so I know I'm not making it back to Earth? 
pretty much. Well, no, then I wouldn't go. I like I, I like I like Earth. Right. I enjoy living here. So I would absolutely uh, I would absolutely not go. Kevin, real quick. Only got about 20 seconds. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry for real quick then. All right. Shatner, a question. All right. uh, If outside of Captain Kirk or uh, obviously T.J. Hooker and other roles, if he could have played a famous role on a comedy or or a a police that was already a role, what? Do you think he would have been good in and a role that already was uh, existed? A, a, um, uh, Hannibal on the A team. Uh, best question, Matt Blaze. William about the food Will- origins. William in Asbury Park on the food origins. Call back. We'll give you a prize. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now here's Frank Morano. We have the greatest audience in the world. So the caller called earlier and asked about a motion picture with someone that he thought was Christina Ricci describing a scene where there was a suicide attempt where she tried to cut her wrists and um, the the song Without You is uh, is playing, the great Harry Nilsson song. And uh, sure enough, I've gotten a whole bunch of people writing to me with the film. Christina Ricci was not in the film. The film was The Rules of Attraction, and uh, the the star of that film, the role that uh, the caller ascribed to Christina Ricci was played by Jessica Biel, I believe, uh, Jessica Biel, but uh, she played Lara. So that's the film, The Rules of Attraction. It's from the year 20, 2002. It actually looks like a good, good picture. Uh, it's a black comedy. And uh, James Vanderbeek is in it, a bunch of other people as well. But, yeah, Jessica Biel, not Christina Ricci. That's why when you tried to – and I figured it might not be Christina Ricci because if you were to Google something and you had the actor correct, chances are that it would come up no problem. All right, 800-848-9222. When you were a teenager, how excited were you to get your driver's license? Were you counting down the days until you could drive? Well, there is some fascinating data coming out this week. Kids don't want to drive anymore. Headline in the Washington Posts. Why aren't teenagers driving anymore? Parents are baffled as their kids delay or forego a driver's license. See, driving a car was once widely considered a coveted rite of passage, but a rising number of children, they don't see it that way. 60, let me give you some statistics here. 60% of 18-year-olds had a driver's license in 2021. That's down from 80% in 1983, according to data from the Federal Highway Administration. In that same period, the number of 16-year-olds with licenses dropped from 46% to 25%. Today's driving-age teens are navigating a very different world with all sorts of complexities. And 
Some uh, some people are saying that it's anxiety that's le- leading teens to be in no hurry to drive. But according to the Federal Highway Administration, only 60% of 18-year-olds had a driver's license in 2021. So why are teenagers not driving? What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Some people say it has to do with anxiety. Other folks say it has to do with, of all things, cell phone usage. Tom Barilla, who is a, uh, a driving instructor, said, Today, so many kids are not engaged with the art of driving, and they are either watching something on their phone or texting. What do you think? 800-848-9222. I have I don't know the answer, right? And I don't think anybody does. And like most things, it's probably not one answer. There's probably a combination of things. I have uh two theories. One is that in general, teenagers are postponing adulthood longer and longer. I mean, it used to be 18 was the the age of adulthood for almost everything. And then it became the age of adulthood for everything except uh, drinking. Then they made that 21. But then gradually they're making um, 18 is no longer the age of adulthood for, for a lot of things. Uh, smoking. In a lot of places, you can't be 18. We're seeing you can stay on your parents' health insurance plan until you're 26. Financially, a lot of, uh, I'm not going to say a lot, I'll say almost every 18-year-old is not financially independent enough to not um, live at home or on their parents' dime somewhere. So I think driving for a lot of teenagers is a very adult thing to do. And I think you see a lot of 18-year-olds happy to postpone adolescence for as long as possible and not want to become adults. I think that's part of it. The other aspect of it is convenience. You know, when I was 18, and I, I never thought I'd be one of those guys saying, well, back in my day, back in my day. But when I was 18, if you wanted to go somewhere, you had two options, you three options. You could drive there. You could get a get someone else to drive you, a friend or a parent or a sibling. I didn't have any older siblings, but so you, a parent or a friend. Or you could call a car service. Uh, this is absent mass transit, right? If you're living in an area where there's not great mass transit, which was the case when I was a, uh, an 18-year-old. Now, if you called a car service, you'd have to call. Um, whatever XYZ car service. And then they'd say, all right, uh, we'll have somebody to you in about a, a half hour, 45 minutes. Okay, they'd finally come. A lot of times the driver would be uh, rude or not a good driver. They would pick someone else up on the way to your destination. Not only are you sharing the back seat with a stranger, but it takes you forever now to get to your destination. But um, it was not a pleasant experience, and it was very time-consuming. Now, we're in an era where because of these e-hail apps, Uber, Lyft, etc., you can say where you want to go, make a decision about where you want to go on the spur of the moment, and then almost within 
minutes. Have a car that will pick you up and take you there. So there's so much convenience with Uber and these e-hail vehicles. And I know even now Yellow Taxis, you can use an e-hail app for. There's so much convenience with them that not driving is really no limitation on going where you want to go. So if you want to go to the mall, if you want to go to the movies, you want to go to a friend's house, you want to go to the beach, wherever you want to go, you can use this e-hail app and a car will be outside of your house or your place of business or your school within four minutes. Now, that wasn't the case when I was a kid. You had to go through an hours-long process, and then, heaven forbid, your your plans change. Oh, I'm actually not leaving at 3 o'clock. Uh, I'm actually leaving now at 3.30. Oh, no, we can't do that. The driver's out there already. You're going to have to charge you extra money. It was a disaster. The only way to escape that was to learn to drive, get a driver's license. Um, so that's my twofold take. I think part of it is psychological, more teenagers wanting to be kids longer, and part of it is convenience. There's so much years ago it was not a convenient thing to get around without a driver's license. Today it is. But that's just my answer. What's yours? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Stephen on Long Island. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Morning. Uh, I agree with everything you just said, but I think it's very simple. The reason why teenagers are not choosing to drive is the price of gasoline. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, all right. I mean, that's 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 a good one. I think it's that simple. Uh, also, in 1983, I think you referenced, if you look at the number of cars that were on the road um, in comparison to today, I think it's very intimidating for, for a teenager to get their license and enter a highway because there's probably, I, I don't know, uh, you know what the uh, the volume of cars is compared to 1980, uh, but it's definitely a lot more significant. And the other thing, and this may not be uh, uh, something that you're willing to talk about. Steve, Stephen, you're breaking up. So uh, if it is something that I'm not willing to talk about, then I'm the lucky beneficiary of it because we can't understand what you're saying. 800-848-9222. Stanley is in Astoria. Hello, Stanley. Hi, Frank. I was wondering if you remember part of the drama of getting your license back in the 70s in New York was when you took the road test. After you took the road test, the person from the DMV would say, we'll contact you by mail. And it all depended on the size of the envelope. If the envelope was thick, you failed because there was paperwork in there where you had to reschedule. But if it was thin, you passed. Uh, Well, so, I I mean, I'm not sure. So I'm not sure I get what you're saying. What does that have to do with why kids are postponing getting their license now? I just wanted to bring to light that some of the drama of going through getting a road test and practicing driving, they don't do it anymore. The convenience, like you said, of Uber gets them away from all of that. They don't have the responsibility. They don't have to go through that anxiety of saying, I got to practice driving. I got to practice parking. So I passed my road test. Back when we were getting them, we had to practice and we got nervous and everything like that. And then the part that made it more nervous was waiting for the result. 
Right. And it all was based on the size of the envelope. Yeah, again, so I don't think, um, I still don't think that explains why fewer children are driving these days or fewer teenagers, but okay, it's a, it's an interesting stroll down memory lane. 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222. Marie is on Long Island. Marie, is it your birthday today? You've got that right. Uh, happy <laughs> birthday. I hope all your wishes come true. Uh, me too. Um, it's a year anniversary of Ukraine war that started this day, but I don't even want to go there right now. You're kidding. With, there was a war in Ukraine? I didn't hear anything about this. It's a year on my 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 birthday last year. But with the drive-in, that gentleman that just spoke today, because my son, today in Suffolk County I'm speaking for, probably Nassau and the city, they tell you if you fail or pass that day that you do that you have to get the permit first. That day you do the driving test with the three-point turn, the parallel parking, and da da da. They tell you if you fail or pass because my son didn't pass the first time, but he passed the second time. And uh, I was like 22 when I got my driver's license. Bless my husband because he taught me how to drive a stick shift, and I used the stick shift card to pass. But anyway, I think because. Today, uh, well, you're going to want your own car. Not everybody can get a new car, but a good used one would work. And the difference between crocodiles and alligators is their jaws, the way they open. Ah, okay. Okay, Okay. that's the fact. That's the fact. Got it. Got it. I appreciate that, Marie. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I've noticed it on my block and everything. I think a lot of it is anxiety in a form of like agoraphobia. Um, and, you know, they have their and also it's true. They have their heads in uh, computers and ordering Ubers. I see a lot of Ubers. Um, but I, I, I know a lot of the generation the millennials that came uh, were on the edge during the 9-11. They actually expressed to me uh, that they were um, really depressed over 9-11. They felt the world was coming to an end. So I think between the pandemic and everything, these last two generations have had so much put upon them. They just want to escape into computers. And and it's true, the, Mm. the fear of driving. I see a lot of them taking driving schools now, where in the old days, the parents used to teach you. Uh, many times. Well, so, you know, I I don't think that's an indication of fear because I know in in New York um, and somebody correct me if if I'm operating on old brain cells on this in New York, if you take driver's ed, you can get your license at 17. Whereas if you don't take driver's ed, you have to wait till 18. So some of those people that are taking driver's ed might be doing it because they can get their license a little bit sooner than uh, than if they were to just wait. Um, yeah, I think, look, I, I can't disagree with anything you're saying, Pamela. It makes, it makes sense to me. Thank you. Um, the license thing was you get your junior license at 16. You can get your license but you'll get your junior license, and if you take driver's ed, then you'll get your senior license at 17. At 17, okay. Right, right. if you took driver's ed. Right. Otherwise, you'd automatically get it at 18. Right, but... um, And a, a junior license was you can't drive after 9 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay, gotcha, gotcha. All right, now, um, 
So I think what I was saying is still accurate, that that's part of the reason people might take driver's ed is so they could get their license at 17 rather than 18. I got an SMS text message here from nationally syndicated radio talk show host Rich Valdez, who does a great job. He writes, AOC's all-out crazy Green New Deal has teens thinking it's sinful to use fossil fuels, less cars on the road. I don't think that's accurate. One, because... um, to see such a difference from 80% to 60%, it's not just liberal teens that aren't driving. It's a lot of conservative teens as well. Second, if that was what, and I'm not sure if Rich was just joking because Rich has a sense of humor. He might have just been joking. Uh, second, if that was the uh, reason, wouldn't you see them eager to drive electric cars? Wouldn't they be all hyped up to drive electric vehicles? So I don't, uh, Rich is a brilliant guy, much smarter than me, but I'm discounting, I'm discounting that. Uh, as far as the answer here, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Frank is in Queens. Hello, Frank. Hey, Frank. Uh, how many eighteen year olds do you know can afford a, a Tesla? <laughs> not, not many. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's a few reasons. I think one of it, one of them, are indeed affordability. When I was eighteen, I, I got my license in nineteen ninety, and I was lucky. I had a, a an old man up the street sold me his. 77 Chevy for 250 bucks. And Frank, that night I was in Manhattan driving around. I couldn't believe it. So what do you think it's about? What's the primary reason? I know you said you think it's a couple of reasons. Why do you think people aren't driving, young people aren't driving anymore? Well, I think uh, you had mentioned initially in the digital age, these kids are able to connect from their bedrooms. When, when we were younger, a car meant freedom. It meant, you know, now we can connect with people in the neighborhood. We can go cruising on the boulevard, yada, yada, yada. I I think these days that doesn't appeal to kids. Yeah, well, all all valid. Uh, Thank you, Frank. Chris on Long Island, hello. Hey, Frank. Great show. Thank you. Um, I'm doubting some of the – I'm sorry about that. I'm doubting some of the, like, the demographics of the poll. Like, my kids are going through the process now, and – they can't wait to drive. You know what I mean? But this isn't like necessarily. Where, like, this, where was the. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. This isn't like, a poll. This is the number of 18-year-olds that have licenses. That have licenses. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's less kids being born. No, but it's a percentage, right? So it was it was eighty okay. percent of eighteen year olds had a driver's mm-hmm. license in nineteen eighty three, and sixty percent of them have a driver's license in twenty twenty one. Oh, okay. All right. I'm sorry for misunderstanding. No, that. that's okay. I'm um, sorry if I was my unclear. Kids are going through it. Yeah, the, my kids are going through it. They can't wait to drive. And so they do the what, junior license thing and everything. What sense do you get from them and their peers about um, you know what might give us some insight into this? What, are their their friends excited to drive as well? Yeah, they're totally. They, they 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 can't wait. That's why they went through the junior license process and took the driver's ed and all that. My daughter has the work study now. She's 16. She can drive to work only. And school, you gotcha. Know, she passed her. She passed her license. But uh, when where I live, I kind of I'm in like rural Long Island. The kids can't wait to drive because there's no public transportation. There's no there's uh, no easy way to get about it. All right, uh, thank you, Chris. Yeah, I mean that was my problem. I lived in an area that didn't have a lot of mass transit to get where you wanted to go. So if you wanted freedom, you wanted to go places, you had to have a license. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Thank you, and let me say hello to Keith in San Diego. Hello, Keith. Hi. Yeah, I think the reason the kids aren't driving, or one of the reasons, 
is for the environment. You know, they're looking around and saying, why should we put out more pollution? Because we're going to help mess up the world more and we won't, you know, and add to the toxicity of the whole environment. Well, here. it's funny, Keith. Um, I that was that was Rich Valdez's uh, observation as well. And I don't think that's true. Right. Because it's such a huge drop off from 80 percent to 60 percent that even if most teens are environmentally conscious, would it lead to that level of of a drop off? I mean, maybe maybe it is. Right. I mean, you have I've, you're you sound like a smart guy and Rich is certainly a smart guy, both saying the same thing. Right. I, that was not even on my list. If you asked me to make a list of the top 20 reasons why kids aren't driving anymore, it, that wouldn't even be on the top 20. But n- now that we've heard from two intelligent people that thinks that's the case, maybe it is. I don't know. 800-848-9222. Steve is in New Jersey. Hello, Steve. Hey, Frank. Hey. Frank, a lot of millennials have learning disabilities. They can't pass the written test. I've known a few had to take it three, four, five times. Once they did, they were able to, to nail the driving test. The written test is the holdback. Okay, um, but why did the young people not have those same learning disabilities 35, 40 years ago? <laughs> you want my thoughts, Frank? Sure. All right. A lot of the the baby boomer generation that raised them, all right, didn't, didn't, they weren't all over them in terms of their learn their their schooling. But I, I have another thought on this, Frank. All right, because I watch a lot of this of my generation. A lot of them took drugs, marijuana. This goes to the pot legalization. Are you saying right? now or lot, forty years ago they took drugs? They took. To, I a lot of people of my generation were smoking. Let's just start with weed. All right, I think they had this defect. You know, they had children with these learning disabilities. I, I noticed it a lot as I was getting, as I was, I never had children, but I watched other people who did, who I know in the day, you know, were users, okay? And they had children. Think about who, what the world yeah, missed out on by Steve in New Jersey not having and children. So picking up a book, remember how you had to pick up that book? And it, yes. was, a, it was a breeze, right? Yeah. Right? But yeah. a lot of kids today have, have a hard time doing that. Don't discount that, please. Okay. Well, yeah, I I, uh, I am discounting that, actually. I um, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. I failed my written test, but you know what you do if you fail your written test? You just take it again. So I, it didn't diminish my enthusiasm for wanting to get a driver's license. It will come as no surprise to anyone that's ever uh, ridden with me. I'm not a good driver, by my own admission. Um, that not only did I fail my written test, w- which is very easy, but I also failed my actual road test twice before passing it the third time. So uh, that was a harbinger of, of things to come. Joe is in Maryland. Hello, Joe. Hi, Frank. Thanks for the call. Uh, Frank, I think the answer is one word, uh, and I'll explain and qualify if you will let me. The one word is expense. You've got a younger person they're not that well off financially. You've got the expense of maintenance, parking, tolls. Mainly, though, insurance. The younger you are, the higher the insurance premium is. And that's what I think the whole ball of wax is, Frank. 
Okay, well, hey, that makes sense, right? And you had the one caller that mentioned gasoline costs, and this would seem to go hand-in-hand hand with that. That's reasonable, right? I mean, uh, what ex- disposable income do most 18-year-olds have? That's true, right? I c- can't argue with that. Like I said, I suspect it's not one answer. It's a multitude of things, in my opinion. 800-848-9222. Chuck is in Warwick. Hello, Chuck. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Great show. I Thanks. really enjoy Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Okay. Kids aren't driving because they're playing video games. They're smoking pot. It's a whole different generation what we have out there now. But I feel like kids smoked pot 40 years ago, too. Not to the extent that they do now. Yeah, I I I don't know. I'm skeptical. I I think marijuana usage was comparable. Um, uh, Maybe not, but I think it was comparable among 18-year-olds 40 years ago. Matt Blaze, you're shaking your head. I don't know if you're agreeing with me or disagreeing with me. I'm agreeing with you. They were smoking pot and playing video games 40 years ago. Yeah. As compared to now. So what, what's your theory on this? I think that it's just not, it's easy to get around with all ride-sharing services. That they just, yeah, they just yeah. don't need, it's not a rite of passage like it was when I got my license and you waited for your 16th birthday to get your learner's permit. It's just not like that anymore. Yeah. I, yeah there's I, other ways. It could be just as simple as that. Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, listen, uh, um, yeah, my, my son is 23 years old and has he has dyslexia, so that caller that was talking about dis, um, disabilities before may have a point there. No, no, but, but Tommy, Tommy with the right, hang, hang on, but I, I'm sure he does, right? And But there were children with dyslexia 40 years ago. And, and in fact, in I, some cases— it was a lot less. Well, it was but, a lot less, but, stuff, I, but here's I, the thing. Well, hang on, Tommy. They didn't I, have the vaccines. Tommy, Tommy, let me not— yeah, I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt you while you're interrupting, but oh, let me interject. Um, so the the issue was that a lot of people with dyslexia, and my friend Obi Murray, who's been in studio here, he ha- has or had dyslexia. Mayor Eric Adams, I've talked to him about this. He's had dyslexia. He had dyslexia. It was just undiagnosed. Now the screening mm-hmm. procedures for things like dyslexia, I think that is why you're seeing an uptick in dyslexia. But go ahead, yeah. finish what you were saying. But you, well, I mean that is, but is I do believe that there is a big uptick. I, I think my son uses it as a crutch at times. You know, I mean, listen, I use my disability is a crutch too you know i have a bad back whatever um but what he doesn't smoke cigarette he's very little pot but he's got a good job and he, he likes going online with his friends and he does that so the computer keeps him off it doesn't give him any motivation right. to go out to go out yeah. and get to life that, that's, you know, he, that's that seems to be thank you tommy a common theme with what a lot of people are saying is years ago if you wanted to see your friends you had to drive somewhere to see them if you wanted to do something with your friends you had to drive somewhere to see them now you can communicate with them via computer on Facebook or uh, even I know a lot of people play video games where they communicate with people in real time on, in the video game. Uh, so you don't have to have a car to have interaction. I think that's probably part of it as well. Um, last comment, and then I want to go to Mars. I'm very excited. We're going to talk with George Haas. He's the founder of the Sedonia Institute, and they have done some really interesting work exploring some of the unusual structures found on Mars. And there's a whole resurgence in interest on what's happening on Mars because of this rover. Perseverance. We've talked about it with Dr. Sky, but I'm excited to talk about it with George Haas in a moment. Sharon is in Yonkers. We'll give you the last word on this subject, Sharon. Hello. Okay. Hey, Frank. Hi. Um, so I kind of, I work in school and I see a lot of the kids these days. I mean, I, I went to school, high school in the early 80s. So um, back then you couldn't wait to drive to get around to do things. Nowadays, kids 
have all their gatherings at their friends' houses or online. Everything is done online. It's ridiculous. They don't know how to interact to have a conversation with each other. It's all texting and Snapchatting and, and everything else. They don't need to go somewhere to meet each other. They meet online um, pretty much. That's that's the reason. And the other thing is, I, I personally, I feel like it's um, they don't want to put themselves in a position where they could, let me see, that's not the right way to say it. Um, years ago, people at 18 were ready to get out and do their thing and, you know, get a full-time job, work, get married at younger ages. Nowadays, you know, they don't want to do that. They put that off till way later. Well, that's um, true. And, and that, I feel like driving is just another one of those things. Right. You might be right, Sharon. You know, in ter- and by the way, speaking of Sharon's, my favorite sister-in-law Sharon uh, just messaged me that my wife, her sister, also failed the road test multiple times. So she has volunteered to teach our son, Carmine, how to drive if we want. But, but I, I seem to remember, you know, Sharon's driving is a little is a little tough at times, too, as a passenger. So I'm not so sure I'm going to sign uh, Carmine up for Aunt Sharon's uh, driver's le- lessons just yet. By the way, happy birthday to Sharon. It was her birthday yesterday. We're hoping to get some of her birthday bumper music suggestions in, but, you know, the powers that be may have other plans. But that theory about online interaction, and shame on me that I didn't think of it, because a lot of people are all saying the same thing. Raphael writing me on Twitter saying, Hi, Frank, it's definitely because of social media, PlayStation, etc., Also, they're not having sex or looking forward to having a girlfriend in the same way we did back in the 70s and 80s. The statistics do bear that out. So I wouldn't have thought that, but you're right, right? Maybe the the decrease in teenagers having sex and the decrease in teenagers driving is due to the same factor, which is this ubiquitous nature of being plugged in to the matrix. You might be right there. Um, All right. Go to Mars, at least on the radio. We're going to talk with George Haas, the founder of the Sedonia Institute, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Simply the best. This is a birthday bumper music selection from my 
uh, sister-in-law Sharon. She is the best of all my siblings-in-law, with apologies to the other however many I have, ten. But um, I am very excited to talk with George Haas. He is the founder of the Sidonia Institute. We're going to tell you what the Sidonia Institute is in just a moment. I caught George on an episode of Unexplained with William Shatner, and I immediately became fascinated with not only his work and the work of the Sidonia Institute, and the more I dove in to the work that he's been doing and the work that uh, his institute has been doing, the more I became determined to try and get him on the radio, and I'm just thrilled that he's agreed to stay up late with us today. Uh, George, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Frank. Thanks for having me on. So, George, explain to folks what the Sidonia Institute is. Um, the Sidonia Institute is a group of independent researchers uh, that was founded back in 1991. Um, it includes um, an image a- analyst by the name of uh, James Miller, uh, two geologists, uh, William uh, Saunders, and uh, our good friend Michael Dale, who um, was uh, living in Oklahoma. And unfortunately, during the, the COVID period, he had passed away. So uh, we mm. were very sad to lose uh, one of our great members of our group. It's a small group, but it's a, a, a group that's very dedicated to uh, reviewing NASA and uh, European Space Agency images and just looking at all of these images and seeing what's on the surface. And explain to folks why it's called the Sidonia Institute. Well, the Sidonia area on Mars is where the famous uh, face on Mars is located. And when we originally started doing this research, it was basically focused on uh, the face on Mars and the Sidonia area. Now, I love that face on Mars. It's a very popular poster in a lot of college dorms. Looks a little bit like Elvis, which always fascinated me. But um, for people that aren't up on this, and I imagine many are, but maybe refresh everybody's recollection of where that image came from of this, this thing that looks like a face on the surface of Mars. Well, this all started back in uh, 1976. Uh, that was the year I graduated. That was the bicentennial year. I graduated high school. I originally uh, was from New Jersey, a little town in New Jersey called Lakewood. Hmm. And uh, so anyway, it, back in 1976, they had the two Viking landers that went on to Mars, and they were you know, looking for water and taking photographs. And one of the uh, interesting images that the Viking uh, orbiter had taken was of this odd facial feature that was in the the middle of this uh, plane in Sidonia. And uh, the other interesting thing, it was surrounded by all these other weird structures, uh, pyramidal formations, uh, one five-sided pyramid that was right next to it. And NASA actually released the image during a press conference. Uh, Dr. Soffin, who was the the science... um, portion of the, of the mission, uh, said they found this odd facial feature on Mars. And uh, a couple of days later, they had another press conference, and they said, oh, no, we took another picture of this, and it kind of disappeared. It was just a trick of light and shadow. However, they never showed that second picture. So it, it sounds like you're somewhat skeptical that the, that the debunking of this face photo was, was on the level. Uh, give me your, your, your take on both the initial photo and what NASA said. And they, they supposedly released other photos in 1998 and 2001, which purported to depict the same area. Is that right? Correct. Uh, the original image was, was taken, like I said, with a you know, low resolution type camera from the old Viking mission. And uh, the second picture that they had said they had taken was actually taken um, 
a month or so later, and um, it actually showed more of the facial features. It actually confirmed uh, what the first picture showed. Now, we were left with those two pictures for like over 20 years mm -hmm. because the image wasn't taken again until, like you said, 1998 with the Mars Global uh, Surveyor camera took, some, uh, took the only new picture of that. And the interesting thing about that was, um, see, when people, like you had said, that the, you had mentioned earlier in these college dorms where they have the pictures of the face on Mars, that you said it kind of looks like Elvis. Right. Well, when people are told that there's a facial feature on another planet or out in the middle of the desert or something, wherever this kind of geoglyphic formation would be, as soon as you say human face, you know, people think of Elvis Presley or Frank Sinatra. You think of a symmetrical human face, uh, which really is a uh, Western European norm for type of artwork. But what we're seeing with the face on Mars, which makes it more complicated for the average citizen to realize, it, this is a bifurcated face. It has a human uh, face on one side and a feline face on the other. Mm. Um, and by the way, now, this, I, uh, this idea of bifurcation with this two-faced kind of mask is, is prevalent in Mesoamerica. Uh, American Indians produced two-faced masks. Uh, this idea of you have a human and a feline, uh, people like Richard Hoagland doing the original research, they said this was kind of like seeing the embodiment of the Sphinx where you have a human and feline. Now, the face on Mars is a complicated formation to look at because of its bifurcation. Like I said, most people want to see a symmetrical face. Uh, by the way, I just put on my Facebook page, and people can look at it, the photos that NASA released in 1976, 1998, and 2001. That's oh, on uh, Facebook.com slash if people want to look along as we're, as we're talking about this. So, uh, But the 1998 photo and the 2001 photo... Those photos don't look that much like faces. Well, again, uh, the 2001 face actually captured the feline side remarkably. Ah, I see. I see. Um, now, the thing was, uh, of course, when, if you had a mask and you were a curator for a museum and you wanted to document uh, the mask, take a photograph of it, a head-on shot, you'd do a, uh, an image on the left side and you'd do an image that would show the right side. The original face on Mars was mostly taken on the humanoid side. The, NASA has never taken another angle shot of the face like that again. All the newer shots are all taken from the feline side. Now, um, what, uh, what do you think the, the fact that uh, there uh, looks like a human face on Mars, what do you think that portends for um, – wh what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean that there is life or what was once life – on Mars? What do you think? Well, when I had, our group was originally looking at all this stuff, we were, we were as perplexed as probably the audience is. You know, why would someone build a bifurcated two-faced mask on a planet Mars? Then uh, we find out this was a very common type of artwork in Mesoamerica, bifurcated, these composite images, very complex uh, artwork that you find with the Olmec and the Maya and the Aztec. And this is what we were finding on Mars. And not only was the face on Mars showing us some of this Mesoamerican imagery, so are some of the surrounding structures. So it not only was convincing us that these were artificial structures by the face on Mars, but was all of the structures that were around it. Uh, right below the face on Mars is a large five-sided pyramid, which uh, a lot of scientists have looked at. And this is building the evidence here at Sidonia. 
The um, And just so we know, how large of a structure do we believe this face is? Are we talking something that's six feet uh, wide, 70 feet wide, 100 feet? How big do we think it is? Well, the face on Mars from the top of the head to the um, the chin is about a, it's about a mile and a half. It's huge. Everything on Mars is big. Like the, two, the, the five-sided pyramid is also about the same size. Everything is like almost a mile uh, in, in size. These things are gigantic. Now, you have lower uh, gravity on Mars, so it would be you know, a lot easier to build these large structures, whoever built them, uh, with the lower gravity. So everything on Mars is very large, and they're built to be seen from above. And the um, so you indicated that you have this structure, which is similar to some imagery out of Mesoamerica, and also some pyramid type structures. Talk to me about those other structures. Oh, what are we actually seeing in those other structures that surround the face? Well, um, early on, Richard Hoagland was one of the you know the prominent uh, characters that was uh, investigating the face on Mars. Uh, he did a whole, whole analysis of all the surrounding structures, and he found there was a whole geometry. These things were aligned, and they had alignments, and they were all uh, – he found out that this was basically recording some kind of tetrahedral geometry. So it was very complex, and a lot of scientists were intrigued by all of these alignments. You know, if you have geometry, you have, you know, uh, a hand in human uh, – creativity here. So that's what they were looking at. Do you think, and we're talking with George Haas, he's the founder of the Sidonia Institute. You can check out their website at thesidoniainstitute.com. That's C-Y-D-O-N-I-A. There's some interesting articles and papers on there as well. But do you think this face could be indicative of the fact that people live there presently? Um, We found no evidence that, that there's any civilization there on Mars currently. Uh, everything we're looking at is uh, ruins. It's stuff that's been there for a very long time. And uh, so that's why we called our institute the Sidonia Institute, because most of the focus on Mars was at the Sidonia area. And when NASA started taking more pictures, I mean, they've been doing this for 30 years with the, uh, you know, the Mars Global Surveyor and the current Mars uh, Reconnaissance Orbiter Camera, which takes very high-resolution images. Uh, so during this early research, one of our uh, Sidonia Institute members uh, Will Faust had discovered this parrot formation uh, in the uh, RG Basin area of Mars, which is directly, if you look at a, a flattened out map like we have of, of the Earth, if you look at one of those maps of Mars, uh, the RG Basin is directly below Sidonia. I see. And um, the as far as we can tell, has the the Perseverance rover, the rover that's been exploring on Mars, has that traveled in the area where the face and the structures are? And w- what images, if any, have we gotten or information, if any, have we gotten from the rover? Well, the rovers, there's a couple of them up there, and they've taken amazing photographs as they're driving around. They take pictures of all these rocks and uh, they, they actually drive it up to some of these little large boulders, and they'll have a little grinder, and they go on there and try to sniff the rock and see what it's made of. So, But they also take all of these like panoramic views of, of the, the landscape. And I'm sure if the listeners out there have been on any of these Facebook pages. There's a lot of groups that are uh, doing a lot of research on these pictures that the rover's taking. And there seems to be broken machinery and all kinds of stuff all over the place. It looks like a place that blew up. It looks like some of these areas that they drive through, it looks like war zones where there's uh, all kinds of machinery and things that are twisted and broken in the background. And uh, there's a lot of images 
I don't do a lot of the research with the rovers. I'm more interested in the aerial photographs. So the fact that uh, someone, in theory, would build these images, uh, pyramids, uh, human face structure, there was an image that came out last month of something that looked like a bear's face. Um, The fact that they would build these to be seen from above, do you think that this was some civilization's way of communicating a message to someone that might be visiting Mars? Oh, of course. Well, uh, ancient cultures on Earth did the same thing. Uh, the American Indians, they built all of these uh, pyramidal formations out in the Midwest and in these mounds, these circular mounds, and uh, also pictographs, uh, large birds, deer. So n- normally where these earlier cultures had a, a little city, they would have a pictograph. So if, I guess the gods would know this is where we are. Here's our bird pictographs and our deer and whatever else they were producing. Uh, serpents, the Serpent Mound in Ohio is a great example. And these were just uh, aerial acknowledgments or signatures saying, hey, we have, a, we have a town here, we have a city here, we have a settlement. And we're seeing the same thing on Mars, like the face on Mars says, hey, looky here, this is a face, something you recognize. Then you look around the area and you go, oh, this looks like a, a community, this looks like it was a, a well-planned out city. So that's these these... These geoglyphs are basically markers for cities, like the parrot formation, which was found by Will Faust. Uh, it's his, this parrot, Frank, has 22 points of anatomical correctness. Wow. This isn't like you're looking in the clouds or you're looking down on the ground and go, oh, that kind of looks like a bird. Isn't that interesting? No, this has detail. Uh, yeah, and people can see a lot of these images of uh, a lot of these unusual structures and uh, on the Sedonia Institute website, the Sedonia uh, Institute dot com. So what do you think the next step? Um, so let me begin with this. Do you think that NASA has been intentionally deceptive in releasing different angled photos of the face or uh, things of that nature? Do you think NASA is keeping something from the public? And if so, why? Well, originally, when NASA took these uh, earlier pictures of the face on Mars and released it to the public, and then they kind of panicked and said, oh, no, this isn't really a face. And they said, we have the, the face on Mars has no scientific uh, interest to NASA. But they've taken uh, almost 30, 40 pictures of this thing <laughs> over the years. So it, it is on their list, and they t- they've been taking it with all of the orbiters that are up there. There's numerous pictures to look at. So, and these images actually verify the bifurcated nature of the face. And the reason NASA is able to get away with telling the public, oh, it's not a face, because it's not a face. It's a bifurcated mask. It's a two, you know, it's a, you have a human and feline mm-hmm. face. So it's not, it's not Frank Sinatra. It's not Elvis Presley. It's something else. And it's very complicated. When we first were looking at the face on Mars, uh, we also were very confused about what is this and why would there be two faces. And once it's duplicated, we're... Some people use the term mirrored, you know, just to give it the the symmetry so you can actually get a better idea of what the feline side looks like or the human side looks like. We notice that the face on Mars has this tri-leaf symbol on its forehead, like a crest. And that's how we got involved in looking up these iconography-type images and found out there's a direct correlation with the cultures of Mesoamerica that this is kind of like a, a royalty symbol. Do, this, do, this do, you, symbol. So do you think, obviously there's no way to know, but do you think there's a possibility that whatever the progenitor of early life on this planet was, was the same entity or entities that was the, uh, the basis for life on Mars, if it was ever there? 
Well, the, the whole idea of the, the solar system here that we have and uh, the idea of, you know, life originating on Earth or did it actually originate on Mars, um, that's an interesting idea. And it could explain why we're seeing these structures on Mars. And like I said, the, there's nobody living there. These structures aren't current. These are very, very old. A, lo a lot of them are partially damaged. And then surprisingly, some of them look pristine because, uh, you know, there's really not that much erosion and, and uh, uh, things like that going on on Mars. You don't have rainstorms and floods and things just, you know, eroding structures down. Everything there kind of stays there for like it was or when it was originally built or if it was bombed and attacked by some extraterrestrial hmm. or inner conflict on Mars, uh, a lot of these things appear to be uh, bombarded with uh, missiles. Well, uh, very interesting. By the way, I should mention uh, George Haas is also the author of uh, a couple of books. One is the Sidonia Codex, and one is the Martian Codex, also the author of many uh, scientific papers. Hey, George, a fascinating conversation. I hope we can continue it as we continue to get more images from Mars, and uh, I hope people check out your website. I hope you'll keep us posted on your work. I will. And thanks for having me on. And if the listeners are interested, this parrot that we're talking about was featured in two science papers that uh, my group published. Uh, the first one back in um, 2011 in the Journal of Scientific Exploration. And it was just uh, updated in, because of the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter took this high-resolution image it was confirming the 22 points of anatomical correctness in this bird uh, by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And that's featured in the... Uh, I think it was the last summer's issue of the uh, Journal of Scientific Exploration. So uh, I would, re you know, hope everybody get out there and you can download the paper. You don't have to pay for it. If you go to our website, there's links to the paper, yeah. uh, the publisher. You can get hard copies on Amazon if you want to order them, or you can just read the paper for free. There's um, there's also a terrific photo on the website of the raptor head geoglyph, which uh, looks very much like an eagle crest. And you have the side-by-side -side comparison on the website, which is really helpful. Um, George, thank you very much for the time this morning. Uh, let's talk again soon. Thanks, Frank. Thanks Pre for having me on. Appreciate it. Have a good weekend. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. It's uh, pretty interesting. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Uh, after the top of the hour, we have denunciations. And then uh, you're not going to want to miss my interview with Chris Fenton on how China is telling Hollywood what to do. Pretty unapologetically, I might add. Now, um, one thing I want you to be aware of. Do you use Venmo ever? We, I use it a lot. And my wife and I use it with one another. And my wife 
is in charge of the bills in our household for the most part. Thank God, because if I was in charge, we probably wouldn't have electricity right now because she's much more on top of things. She's much more organized than I am. So a lot of times what we'll do is she'll say, all right, I need this amount of money for the mortgage, this amount of money for the car payment, this amount of money for utilities, and I will Venmo her the money. And yesterday she said, all right, I need X, Y, Z amount of money to – you know, for whatever expenses. And I send it over to her. And it was a decent amount of money. It was most of my paycheck. Then I go to sleep. Send her the money. I go to sleep. After I did my uh, appearance with uh, Sid Rosenberg yesterday. Great appearance. Thank you for having me on, Sid. And then I wake up hours later. And she says, good morning and so forth. Then she said, and what's this? what's this $400 that you need? I said, what are you talking about? She said, you sent me a, you sent me a, uh, a request for $400. I said, I never sent you a request for $400. She said, then your Venmo was hacked. I said, let me see your request. She brings it over now. And sure enough, it says Frank Morano requests $400. And it has a message. Sorry, I'm paying you right back. And it gives you two options. Pay or decline. Someone had created a Venmo name that was my name, but just with a dash after it. So it looks just like mine. So the lesson is, I thought our Venmo transactions were private. You have to set it to private. So if you use Venmo, set your transactions to private. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We are moments away from denunciations. I'm going to tell you who I think deserves a denunciation uh, this week. But um, we have uh, a couple of people that have been patiently holding. Let me try and grab at least a call or two before we move on to denunciations. 800-848-9222. Vernon is in New Jersey. Hello, Vernon. How you doing? I'm well. I appreciate you asking. Well, the thing is, uh, you talk about the face on Mars. The thing is, like, most curious thing to me is that you ever look at the face on the moon. Mm, uh, Hello, I, I'm I'm trying to think. I'm trying to picture it. I don't know that I can picture it at the at the moment. I'll have to look it up. But, but you ever look at through a telescope? Does look nothing like a face? I would kind of think of the thing with the thing with face on Mars. Like, you really look at close up pictures. Does really look doesn't really look like a face. But if you take it for a certain angle. It looks like a face, but it ain't look like something else. But I would kind of think with all these sharp satellites and everything, they would give a conclusive face and let let, let everybody, let, 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 besides that, everybody speculate what it looks like. I would kind of think it's more conclusive picture, but it's kind of weird that they just, from a certain angle, look like one way, you know, it to us. Yeah. And the thing about the, sure. Uh, th- the, yeah, thank you, Vernon. Thank you. I think, um, you know, look. All these, and I just did look up that face on the moon, on the South Pole of the moon. That looks interesting, also. But um, all these structures, it could be just like when you look at stars or when you look at clouds. 
oh, that looks like something, right? And, um, you know, it's a very human thing to seek structure out of seeming, you know, look, different collections of images look like different things, right? So it could just be a coincidence. But unlike the moon, there are a lot of geoglyphs on Mars that seem to resemble things that are on Earth. And a lot of them do have some similarity to different things that were in Mesoamerica, different Mesopotamian cultures and and other things. So I thought that was I thought that it was interesting. So I've been looking at all these images ever since I first discovered the Sedonia Institute on Shatner's show. And uh, I figured people would be interested in it as as well. But, you know, you look at the images, you make your own make your own decisions about, you know, what you're what you believe. I think it's worth exploring, though. I really do. All right. Uh, without further ado, it is time for The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. I must denounce the people that rig boardwalk games. There has been a Jersey Shore boardwalk game operator banned for for overinflating basketballs. Christine Struthers, she received seven licenses to operate basketball and quarterback challenge games on the boardwalks in Wildwood and North Wildwood last year, and inspectors found some basketballs had up to three times the amount of recommended air. I think we've always suspected that a lot of these boardwalk games are rigged, and um, this just proves that at least some of them are. But I'll tell you what I was happy about. I'm glad that the New Jersey Attorney General, Matthew Platkin, was actually out there looking into whether or not these games were rigged or not. In some ways, it actually gives me more confidence in the boardwalk games than I had before, because uh, before this, I always thought, ah, they're all rigged. Well, they, you, can't get, you, can't, you can't get a fair shake in any of those games. Now, the fact that I know that the Attorney General's office is looking into whether or not these boardwalk games are honest or not, it actually gives me more confidence in the ones that are still remaining, if that makes sense. But if you're somebody, whether you're Christine Struthers or anyone else, that would dare rig the sanctity of a boardwalk game, I do denounce you. I spend a lot of time... On the Atlantic City boardwalk, spent a lot of time on the Coney Island boardwalk, and I love playing those games. Still, as an adult, I'll be honest, I get just as much of a, a kick out of playing these games now as I did when I was 10. And I just love it. And I hate to think that these games are rigged. And uh, Christine Struthers, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the meatpacking plants that are employing miners. Sure enough, a major food sanitation company has paid $1.5 million in penalties for employing more than 100 teenagers in dangerous jobs at meatpacking plants at eight different states. The U.S. Department of Labor said that Packers Sanitation Services, Inc. allowed at least 102 children between the ages of 13 and 17 years old to work overnight shifts and use hazardous chemicals to clean dangerous meat processing equipment such as brisket saws and head splitters used to kill animals. Call me crazy. If you're 13 years old, you should not be using something called 
a head splitter. So, Packers Sanitation Services, Inc., I do denounce you. I must also denounce the group responsible for disclosing sensitive U.S. military emails. A government cloud email server was connected to the Internet without a password. Now, this is frightening. Absolutely frightening in this day and age. But sure enough, the U.S. Department of Defense secured an exposed server last Monday that was spilling internal U.S. military emails to the open Internet for two weeks. Two weeks. This exposed server was hosted on Microsoft's Azure Government Cloud for Department of Defense customers, which uses servers that are physically separated from other commercial customers and as such can be used to share sensitive but unclassified government data. The exposed server was part of an internal mailbox system storing about three terabytes of internal military emails, many pertaining to U.S. Special Operations Command or um, or other high-level units. But a misconfiguration led left the server without a password, allowing anyone on the Internet access to the sensitive mailbox data using only a web browser. I mean, this is shocking. So I don't know who's responsible for this, but whomever's responsible for allowing this kind of information to be out there for two weeks, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the state with the um, very worst property taxes in the country. Any guesses as to what it is? What do you think it is? Well, uh, I have a feeling you will not be shocked. The state with the worst property tax, it, the worst effective real estate tax rate in the entire union, even including the District of Columbia, is New Jersey. New Jersey. You know, I saw all my family and friends growing up move from where I grew up to New Jersey. And they all moved out there because they wanted big houses and big pieces of property. And sure enough, they all were socked with paying a boatload in property taxes. So the question is, what are you paying for? You want to get a good deal on a house and then have to pay a lot of taxes? Well, in New Jersey, that's what happens. And it's the whole state of New Jersey is just out of control with property taxes. You know, I've always fantasized about getting a place in Atlantic City. And there's places that you could buy in Atlantic City for nothing. Nothing. And sure enough, I would talk to friends of mine that live in Atlantic City that have, uh, say, a condo. And the amount of taxes that people are paying for a one-bedroom or a two-bedroom condo in Atlantic City, that's more than I'm paying for a four-bedroom house in New York City in terms of property taxes. So, New Jersey, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am sorry for anybody that's a Mormon, but 
The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its investment arm have been fined $5 million for using shell companies to obscure the size of the portfolio under church control. So the Mormon church maintains billions of dollars of investments, stocks, bonds, real estate, agriculture, and this portfolio was controlled by Ensign Peak Advisors, a nonprofit investment manager overseen by leaders in, you know, that adhere to the Mormon faith. The church was aware of this. And they've agreed to pay a million dollars in penalties. And Ensign Peak, the, the person that was doing this fraud or the, the group that was doing this fraud, will pay four million dollars in penalties based on the violation. Ensign Peak avoided disclosing investments with the church's knowledge. It denied the SEC and the public an accurate account of information required by law. Federal investigators said for a period of 22 years, the firm violated agency rules and the SEC Act by not filing paperwork required that disclosed the value of its assets. Not right. So, Mormons, I do denounce you. I want to be clear, I'm not denouncing individual Mormons. I'm denouncing the Mormon church as, a, as an entity, as a group, as an institution. I must also denounce Stephen Wong, a top aide to New York City Councilman Christopher Marte, who berated, and this is caught on tape, it's not a she said, he said kind of a deal. This person who was being paid with public money berated a female journalist with a torrent of sexist slurs. Stephen Wong, an aide to City Councilman Christopher Marche, made the offensive comments in four voicemails left with the reporter Lotus Chow of a Chinese-language publication, Sing Tao Daily, on February 15th in regards to a disagreement over a news article she had written about the Democratic City Council member. The messages which were in Cantonese said... F you, F your mother, you C-word, C-word between your legs, slaughter you pig, you C-word pig, and your newspaper go die. Chow called the comments she was subjected to abhorrent and unacceptable. The the messages were vile, vulgar, demeaning, and hate-filled. She's exactly right. She's exactly right. And I hope Stephen Wong is uh, forced to face some sort of retribution or some sort of penalty, I should say, for this. But until then, Stephen Wong, I do denounce you. I must denounce the Forsyth County School District in the state of Georgia. The school district has been forced to pay over $100,000 in legal fees after banning moms from exposing pornographic material. Here's what happened. There's this group called Mama Bears, and they didn't like some of the books that were in their kids' school. So one mom gets up and uh, she starts reading at a school board meeting. 
from the text of a book that's available in her middle school son's library. And they stop her because it's pornographic. I can't even repeat it on the radio. They stop her. They wouldn't give her time to speak. So she tries to continue at the next school board meeting. They wouldn't allow her to speak. They silenced her and wouldn't allow her to speak at future school board meetings. Meanwhile, these books are available for middle school students. And we can have a debate about whether that's appropriate or not. But um, you can't say, okay, the book is available for my middle school to take out, but I can't read from it at a school board meeting. So anyway, this group sued and um, they are settling. The district is settling the lawsuit. But now the school district is going to have to pay the attorney fees for this group of $107,500 and the nominal damages of $17.91 had, I mean, if you're a taxpayer in Forsyth County, you got to be pretty ticked off about this. Had they just let these mama bears speak and make their point, the school district wouldn't be out $100,000 or to be precise, $107,500. So Forsyth County School District, for your adherence to... A lack of free speech, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the Memphis Police Department. And I hate to do this because I I don't like to be the guy that Monday morning quarterbacks. I don't like to be the guy that um, questions how people who have a tough job, which the police certainly do, how they're doing it. But I, I have to say, this is just, this is absolutely asinine. Uh, so there was a there was a situation in Memphis, Tennessee on February 9th. A man got into an argument with a store clerk because she wouldn't sell him beer. And the man took an entire display of chips and put them into his car. While walking with the display, several bags of chips fell to the ground. The clerk followed the man out of the store as he's walking out with his chip display. After the suspect drove off, another man has nothing to do with this chip display situation. Another guy, Joseph Broswell picked up two of the fallen bags of chips, which were valued at a whopping $4.98. And minutes later, police found this man, Joseph Broswell, with crumbs on his face. He picked up the stolen chips, the chips that someone else stole. He picked them up, and he ate those chips. Clear violation of the five-second rule. Police said they reviewed the video footage and concluded that Broswell was aware of the theft. And wouldn't you know it, the police arrested this guy. They arrested the guy that picked up a bag of stolen chips that's worth $4.98. So he's been charged with theft of merchandise less than less than $1,000. Guys, the guy stole a bag of chips. Is it worth anybody's time? First of all, the guy 
didn't steal a bag of chips. Somebody else stole a bag of chips, and then two of them fell, and this this poor guy ate some of these chips. And we're arresting him? How about you arrest the guy or go look for the guy that had those chips, that he, the chip display? What a waste of everybody's time. They had, this guy has to go through the system and have an arrest on his record, and they're going through the time of booking this guy and taking his picture for a $4.98 that he didn't steal and somebody else stole. This is idiotic. Memphis Police Department, I do denounce you. I must also denounce uh, the, I'll make this the last one because I want to leave some time for Chris Fenton. I must also denounce the Kelly family. Uh, The Kelly family documents their life on TikTok, and they are being blasted by others, including me, for using a hack to allow their son, their young son, to go on rides. The son is not tall enough to go on these rides. So you know what they did? They made some fake shoes for him so that you can't tell that he's wearing lifts that add height to him. The kid is too short for these rides, and the parents have helped him fake his height. He's heightening. The reason these they don't want you riding on these rides if you're short is because it's dangerous. These parents are not doing their child any favors if he's not tall enough to go on the rides by sneaking him onto the ride. And the fact that they're advertising this on TikTok and essentially encouraging others to do it, it's dangerous. Somebody could get hurt. I, I don't know. I mean, look, I love roller coasters as much as anybody. If the kid's not tall enough, you have to wait till you're tall enough. Sorry. Kelly family, I do denounce you. And... uh May God have mercy on your soul. All right, we're going to talk with Chris Fenton in just a moment. Um, he is the author of a fascinating book called Feeding the Dragon. He's a Hollywood executive, a film producer, and he is chronicling how China is telling, is dictating to us what we get to see in our movies. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. I've been following this for a long time, including Chris's work. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. It's no secret that China has been in the news. It's been in the news for balloons. It's been in the news for COVID. It's been in the news for what may or may not happen with Taiwan. But one area where maybe there hasn't been enough attention paid to the issue of China and its relationship with the United States has been Hollywood. You ever notice that in the last few years, something strange has happened in cinema? Something strange has happened with American movies. You remember the first Independence Day movie where the Americans were able to beat the aliens on their own? Well, not the second one. We needed the Chinese to do that. You remember the film The Arrival or Arrival with Amy Adams? Great film, but who's the hero in that film? It's not really Amy Adams. It's a communist Chinese general. 
What happened? Why is it that uh, so often, whether it's uh, science fiction, whether it's action movies, whether it's adventure films, it seems like China is portrayed in a positive light. Why is it that so often it seems like realistic scenarios that may play out in an action film so rarely seem to involve Chinese villains in cinema? Well, someone who has been thinking about those issues for a long time now is Chris Fenton. Chris Fenton is a veteran Hollywood executive, a film producer, and the author of a terrific book in which he explores some of these issues, Feeding the Dragon. Chris, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me. Well, it's fantastic to be on the show and a perfect time to do it, too. I, mean, I thought you were going to bring up that crazy movie where this... Uh, a uh, spy balloon flies over the United <laughs> States for a week, and we try to decide whether to shoot it down or not. That was a scary movie. All right, hey, Chris, I want to pick your brain on a bunch of different things with respect to Hollywood and current events. Give folks a little bit of a sense of your background. You spent uh, a lot of time, 17 years, as president of DMG Entertainment Motion Picture Group. And what what does that entail exactly for those of us that haven't spent a lot of time in the movie business? And how did you come to start doing business in China? Well, imagine running a studio like Warner Brothers, but instead of uh, one here in Hollywood, which where I'm located now, um, it was in Beijing. And, and the goal of that was to create the biggest blockbusters possible for the China market. Um, but do that when the Chinese domestic film industry was incapable of making best in class, sort of world class type of franchise movies. So they had to rely on Hollywood's expertise and the Hollywood blockbusters that were coming out of Hollywood, say, 100 movies of those a year, and figure out how to brand integrate China into those films to make them more relevant, not only for the government to allow approval of those films to get into the market, but then more relevant for the Chinese consumer to actually get engaged with the characters, the plot and the storyline so that they could actually go out and spend the big money to go see the movies in a cinema. So that was my role was to figure out, okay, how do you take a movie like Iron Man 3 or how do you take a movie like the remake of Point Break or uh, Looper, the Bruce Willis, Joseph Gordon-Levin movie, and brand integrate China into it so that, A, we could get it past the government for approval, and B, get the Chinese consumer excited enough to make it a top 10 movie for the year. And I, I enjoyed that movie, Looper, a great deal, by the way. I, I saw it for the first time recently, and I'm a sucker for time travel films, and uh, that was uh, that was terrific. But um, why should our listeners care, people listening to the show right now, what kind of films are shown in China? How does it affect them? What difference does it make to anybody what China's doing in terms of its film market? Well, number one is if you enjoyed the movie Looper, you probably didn't notice that you were succumbing to soft power propaganda from the Chinese Communist Party. Um, that movie was originally supposed to take place in France in the future. But in order to get the movie into China, the Chinese government wanted us to make the utopian world of the future, the future world 40 years um, away from the present, to take place in China because that's where everyone wanted to live 40 years from now. It was so interesting we, that that, that uh, scene where Jeff Daniels, whose character is mm -hmm. from the future, tells Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's in the present day, he says, uh, trust me, I've seen the future. You want to be, you want to move and live in China. 
Right. And if you can remember Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who didn't know anything about the future, he just thought France was a good place to go. He was saying, I want to go to France. And Jeff Daniels slams his fist down and says, you want to go to China. And what was even more interesting about that scene is it was the best testing moment in the movie when we tested it with U.S. audiences. So not only were they digesting Chinese propaganda about the future being all about China, but they were but number liking two it. Is they, they were liking it, right, which is really unbelievable. Now, that doesn't seem particularly nefarious or, or pernicious in it by itself, but when you realize that's the way the Chinese government works, where they're essentially using every type of business that wants access to that market, every industry that wants access to that market, to be a, a, a propaganda organ for whatever their narrative is around the world. And we've seen that with whether it's Marriott or airlines that are depicting Taiwan as a separate market, um, suddenly getting in trouble for that because China, the Chinese government, does not want people recognizing Taiwan as its own independent country. And so because China has such a big film market and because all the studios want access to those million or those billion people and billion potential moviegoers, it affects the product that we see here in the United States. So we see a looper which is uh, taking place where China's this utopia instead of France, and it takes place in film after film that American audiences see. That's 100 percent the case, and it's why... If you watch a Jason Bourne movie, uh, like a Bourne Identity, or you watch the latest James Bond film, you'll continuously see the old rehashes of Cold War spies based in East Berlin or in Eastern Bloc countries that don't even exist anymore, mm. rather than the true villains that may be one that are flying uh, you know, hot air balloons over the country to drop an EMP over a major metropolitan city in the U.S., or perhaps one that's going to plant a nuclear device in Taipei the next time there's a U.S. congressional delegation trip there. I mentioned a few examples. I mentioned the Independence Day sequel and Arrival, and uh, I think the film uh, The Martian and Gravity are a couple of other examples. You mentioned Looper. What are a few other instances of cinema over the last 15, 20 years that people might have uh, not noticed anything at the time, but when they rewatch it with this in mind, they'll recognize as actually Chinese propaganda? Well, I mean, you'll see a lot of different instances of it. I mean, for instance, when we uh, made Iron Man 3, for instance, that was all about showcasing the technological and medical marvels of China. So we actually created a character to remove the RT, which is that device in Tony Stark's, around Tony Stark's midsection, um, by a Chinese doctor that actually perfected the science and the medicine in the final scene of the movie. If you remember, that movie is really about Tony Stark realizing that he can be the person he is without being Iron Man. So the Chinese doctor was in charge of that. There's even small movies of, say, Bait, which was a, uh, a horror movie where sharks overtake a mall in Australia. And China said, hey, if you want to get this movie into China, you need to make sure that the Chinese come and save the Australians from this shark-infested world that's that's essentially killing all the Australians around this particular mall, sort of a night of the living dead. Um, You see that in all kinds of other movies, whether it's uh, the Pac Rim movies or the Meg movies, et cetera. It's really about creating this idea that China is going to be the savior of the future and current world. And, and it plays out in real time because we just saw the latest 
uh, announcement that China now wants to be the savior, the white knight that ends the Ukrainian and Russian war, which, by the way, would be great if it actually happens. But they want to be anointed the ones that fix that problem. As far as the films go, uh, is it the studios themselves that take it upon themselves to spin this pro-Chinese narrative? Or does the Chinese government or whoever's in charge of being the gatekeeper of films that are released in China, do they actually say to Warner Brothers, MGM uh, or whatever the studio du jour is, do they say, look, if you want access to our marketplace, you're going to have to put a a pro-China spin on this. How does it actually work? Well, one of the first warning shots was in 1997 when uh, the seven years in Tibet uh, and uh, several other movies were made where China was seen as a villain or right. Red an Corner, enemy state. I remember, right? A Red Corner, exactly. Uh, Kundun was the other one. And China immediately said, hey, well, none of those movies are getting into our market, number one. But number two is anybody involved with those films will never work in this market again. And that was the shot heard around the world. And ever since then, they've been rather ambiguous about what they let in and what they don't. And there's been a lot of blackballing of, say, Marvel movies over the years. I mean, the last big Marvel movie was in 2019. It was Avengers. It made $750 million just in that market. And then for a few years after that, not a single Marvel movie got in. No one knew why. They try to keep you off balance, uh, not knowing exactly what their protocol or what their actual directive is, so that it causes you to scale what you would normally try to focus your premeditated censorship around and make it very large and widespread. No one knows exactly what is going to catch them off guard when it comes to the Chinese party. So everybody is overly cautious, and that causes all kinds of issues. All right, we're talking with Chris Fenton. He's the author of the book Feeding the Dragon. You were featured in an article that uh, Ben Smith wrote for Semaphore. The the headline was Hollywood's China Dream is Back, and it talks about some of the difficult times that Hollywood has had with China of late, but then it talks about how films like uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Dungeons and Dragons, and Avatar has uh, they've done incredible box office numbers in China, hundreds of millions of dollars, which in some cases for films that are this expensive to make could be the difference between being uh, just barely profitable and super profitable. What has happened now that uh, Hollywood is all of a sudden in the market for uh, cashing all this Chinese box office money in? Well, what's interesting is that Uh, No one knows for sure exactly what the Chinese government is thinking with this turnaround on approvals. But the thought process is they went a long time blackballing the studios and the studios started to look at other markets and started to think less about China and all of their P&L assessments and what they were doing creatively. And somebody inside the Chinese government probably said, hey, we're losing our leverage because we're not dangling a carrot. So they started dangling the carrot and allowing movies in. But what's really interesting is that the movies aren't working. In fact, this latest Ant-Man movie made less in the three-day opening weekend than we did with Iron Man 3 in one single day back in 2013. And to date, Ant-Man's only at $23 million. It should be at least at $100 million by now. So 
these movies just simply aren't working, but the carrot is being dangled, which is really important in terms of the Chinese Communist Party getting that type of leverage over Hollywood that they gotten used to. What are the dangers of this sort of propaganda? What's the harm? Uh, let's say, you know, a private business wants to make a lot of money, and if it involves making a lot of money by uh, not making the Chinese character the bad guy in an action movie, what's the harm? Why is that a danger to American audiences and American moviegoers? Well, it's a fantastic question, but it, it comes down to what they want us to believe and what the narrative is around the world. For instance, I don't really have a big problem censoring products, censoring content to get access to the market if that censorship is just done for the market itself. For instance, in Hollywood, Hollywood censors things for Korea, for Japan, the Middle East, et cetera. But none of those countries ask for that censorship to be carried out throughout the world. What China does that is particularly pernicious and actually damaging to the free speech rights that we have as Americans is they force us to make those changes that we're making inside of China for the rest of the world to see. And that is the problem. And it's not just Hollywood that is facing this. I mean, it would be one thing if Daryl Morey could – the the GM of the Houston Rockets back in 2019 could say on Twitter, which, by the way, is not in China – He could say, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, right? And he did that outside of China. China can block that from their people. That's fine. But what they wanted to do was block that from anybody else in the world seeing. And when everybody else in the world did see it, they banned the NBA for over two years in the market. Wow. How does China handle a film like Top Gun, which not only doesn't have a Chinese hero, but is an unabashedly kind of pro-America, pro-patriotism, pro-military, really well done, entertaining film? How do they handle a film like that? Yeah, the way they handle it is they just don't let it in. Simply, that's that's the way it goes. But what the problem was with that film is that not only did everybody know that wasn't going to get into China, But China said, you need to remove the Japanese and Taiwanese flags off of the flight jacket of Maverick. And that was the real problem because they asked us to do it for the rest of the world, for the cut that everybody in Argentina and Germany and the United States would see. And that's where the real issue is, right? It's not like, oh, you can't show it in China, so let's just move on to the next film. They said, no, you can't show it in China. And by the way, you can't show the cut you want to show to the rest of the world and until you fix it, you're blackballed from the market for every other movie you do. Wow. So they can't just say, all right, uh, we think we're, we're good on this Top Gun film with the American market and these other markets. They will actually say uh, that even though this film's not being shown here, we're not going to allow any of your other films to be shown in here. That's 100 percent the case. And it's why a studio might say, oh, you know what, let's make a really good movie about Tiananmen Square in 1989 or the Hong Kong protests in 2014 or something about Taiwan or something about Tibet. You're not going to see those type of movies, even if they're not even creating the movie on a budget that doesn't even count for any sort of revenue out of China. If that movie is made, that studio is blackballed from ever getting back into that market. And that market has a lot of promise because as we talked about, 
they dangle that carrot sure. out there enough for everybody to realize, wow, we can't screw this up. Uh, talking with Chris Fenton, he's the author of the book Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. I guess that uh, answers my next question, which is, you know, if it is so important for, say, a James Bond-type character or a Jason Bourne-type character to be facing a realistic enemy, say, a, a Chinese EMP attack or something along those lines, I was going to ask you know, you've got a lot of experience in the media. Why can't you make a movie like this? And I guess the answer is because any studio that distributes that kind of a picture would find itself uh, just without an opportunity to distribute any future films in China. Well, for the New York area only and also your friends in Staten Island, I will say (laughs) that we're secretly working on a couple of those type of plots out there. But just don't tell the Chinese government about that. Your secret is safe with us. All right. You mentioned the NBA situation. What are other sports leagues dealing with and what do they do? I'm sure uh, there are a number of other sports beyond the NBA uh, that would like access to those uh, potential billion fans for their sport. What do they do that deals with China or, or what do they not do? I guess is a better question. Well, look, I think there's a huge opportunity for what I refer to as the Muhammad Ali effect by some of these athletes and leagues. Um, and that's essentially taking a short term hit for a long term gain, which is something Ali did back in the 70s. Um, we've seen this play out with the Women's Tennis Association. Um, They had a peer player of theirs named Peng Shui who disappeared after criticizing and saying that one of the standing committee members actually sexually harassed her over the years. She disappeared. The WTA and all of its players said they would never play in that market again until she's found and until they know she's okay. And China immediately banned the WTA from playing any events or any of their players endorsing anything with Chinese partners. But what was great about that is that the Women's Tennis Association, which I had never thought about and probably many others hadn't, suddenly took on a much larger brand identity around the world. There was more consumer awareness. And they're now seeing bigger events, bigger prize money, and bigger sponsorships than they ever had. So by doing the right thing, capitalism can actually thrive. Uh, it's really interesting. Talking with Chris Fenton, uh, you want to check out his book, Feeding the Dragon. You could order your copy at the website, feedingthedragon.com. Chris, uh, just let me pick your brain on policy and current events with respect to China. I know you mentioned the spy balloon earlier. W- what is your take on what happened with uh, not only our handling of the spy balloon, but the fact that the Chinese would be so brazen to send a balloon over there in, in a manner that's so visible, not not just to the government, but even to civilians. Uh, how do you think the whole spy balloon thing went down? Well, I'm not a national security expert, but I will say two things. One is the spy balloon was one of the greatest uh, sort of stories that has occurred in the U.S.-China relationship that has really mesmerized and fascinated the large majority of the American public, which is really important in order to carry out good policy and good lawmaking when it comes to re rating the playing field between the two countries. Um, That story couldn't go away because that balloon flew over us for a good week before it was shot down. Um, It allowed people to really go, hey, it's sort of good versus evil, or it's bad versus good, or we're the victim and they're preying on us. What are we going to do? And what's great about that is it leads into this bipartisan select committee in Washington, D.C. that's led by Republican 
named Mike Gallagher um, out of Wisconsin. He's put together a bipartisan team of half Democrats and half Republicans to address a lot of these big challenges that we're facing with China in a very constructive way and in a way that's unified. And that is the only way we're going to be able to address the China challenge that Beijing's putting on us because they play the art of war. They play a long game. They play a game of chess and they're simply trying to divide us in order to conquer us. In terms of COVID, you know, at the very least, uh, the most charitable view of how China handled this is that they lied to not only their own people, but the world about the severity of the covid uh, pandemic and were just incredibly dishonest actors with international health authorities and foreign governments about uh, what was to come and what was already happening. W- what's your take on uh, kind of what China owes to the world over their handling of the COVID pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a perfect exposure of the problem of that system of government. I mean, it's a bottom up. So reporting goes from the lowest levels up through the hierarchy and eventually to the standing committee and Xi Jinping. So if you're in a totalitarian system, the last thing you want to do is report bad news to the person above you. So I look at that and I think, wow, that wasn't a huge cover up per se. It was just a lot of incompetence mm. and a lot of people are being fearing being killed as the messenger. And now that we've seen this all play out, the fact that they're not giving us access to properly investigate what happened so that the whole world can prevent such a mishap from happening again is to the detriment of the long-term health and safety of the whole world. And I think the, the globe on the whole needs to pressure China to allow us to fully investigate it the same way the FAA would investigate any sort of plane crash to make sure the same thing doesn't repeat. Um, we need to do that on something at this scale. And it's crazy that between the, you know, the, the WHO and the UN and everybody else involved, we can't simply figure out how this happened and how to prevent it from happening again. We're talking with Chris Fenton, author of the book Feeding the Dragon. My son has a he's 14 months old. He has a a soccer ball that someone gave him a Team USA soccer ball. I'm looking at the soccer ball the other day. Of course, it says made in China. Uh, You look through everything, the clothing that we have, uh, the uh, electronic devices that we have, everything. It has that label made in China, made in China, made in China, even American flags that might be around the house. What can consumers do if they don't want to be part of this, uh, the problem? I mean, we have kind of a, a, it seems like a suicide pact going where the government keeps borrowing money from China in order to finance deficit spending and consumers uh, keep uh, borrowing money from their credit card company in order to purchase made in Chinese goods. It it really, it seems like a very, uh, a a, a strategy that's very self-defeating in the long term. Any advice on how consumers can kind of get off that Chinese carousel? Well, first of all, I would check that soccer ball and make sure it's not a tiny spy balloon, number one. (laughs) Uh, But I will say, I mean, look, I'm pragmatic about this. We've entangled ourselves since essentially 1972 when Kissinger and Nixon first went over there. And it's really complicated to untangle. I have no problem with non-national security supply chain products and services being manufactured over there, tchotchkes and T-shirts and you name it, as long as it's done under 
civil, uh, you know, and, and appropriate human rights and uh, employee rights type of situations. But outside of that, I mean, COVID has really uncovered some of the major medical and healthcare supply chain issues we have, some of the resource uh, supply chain issues, the national security issues like semiconductor chips to various other components of all kinds of things that we need in times of really difficult defense, uh, you know, uh, challenges. So we need to think about that and figure out how to bring that type of supply chain issue back on our shores or to friendly shores. And we do need to continue some sort of engagement that puts America first, but also allows us to have some sort of non-Cold War relationship with that other superpower. Because like it or not, China is not going anywhere anytime during our lifetimes or the lifetimes of of your 14-month-old kid. Yeah. And uh, finally, Chris, is there, in your view, I know you're a nonpartisan guy, but you've also recommended a variety of nonpartisan solutions. Is there one party that's better than the other on the Chinese issue, or are they equally bad in terms of national security, in terms of uh, currency manipulation, trade, international intellectual property theft? Does one party, you mentioned Congressman Mike Gallagher, who happens to be a Republican, is one party better at handling this than the other? Well, I can tell you, as I started talking about this issue from a very nonpartisan standpoint, uh, for a long time, the only platforms that would have me on to talk about it were right-leaning platforms. That was just the bottom line. So the right side of the aisle definitely got on the case earliest. Um, I think they've been best in, in regards to addressing the issues or attempting to do them. Um, but now what's great is the left side has to. I mean, keep in mind, keep in mind we have free speech. We have uh, middle-class manufacturing issues. We have supply chain issues. We have national defense issues. These are things that affect both parties equally, and both parties need to come together to address this challenge. And you have a 14-month-old. I have a 16-year-old who plays uh, lacrosse, and I know that when he faces a big rival team, his team gets together better than I've ever Mm. seen before because they got to rise up and take that rival playing their A game. And China's going to play their A game, so we need to play ours, and we need you We need to unify in order to do that. Well said. I hope people check out the book, uh, Feeding the Dragon. Chris Fenton, I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks very much. Hey, thanks for having me on. Have a good one. Appreciate it. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is levitating 
Uh, Dua Lipa. This is uh, one of my wife's favorites. I find this playing in our house all the time. I uh, will come down from my mid-afternoon slumber, or that's when I start my day, really. And uh, it's fr- really remarkable. Not remarkable, but it's it's fr- noticeable how often I... Uh, I end up hearing this song. All right, 800-848-9222. So I, um, I was invited to two fundraisers next month, one for a uh, politician running in Brooklyn and one for a, uh, a local Republican Party organization in New Jersey. Now, I'm not a Republican, so... Some people say, well, why would you go and speak at a local Republican event? And also, even my wife asked me, this politician running in Brooklyn is running against somebody that I've known for a long time. I wouldn't I would say we're friendly. Uh, We certainly know each other for a long time. We've worked on a lot of the same campaigns together. And uh, my attitude, what I said to her was, I will go, especially now that I'm looking to build awareness of this show and get more publicity for what we're doing on the show. I will go to anywhere that I am invited to speak. And I stand by that, honestly. And um, and so I'm mentioning this because if you want me to speak at your event, it doesn't matter whether you're Republican, Democrat, communist, non-political, whatever. I'm going to say what I'm going to say regardless, but I will be happy to speak at your event. So uh, to people that may read my attendance at a fundraiser, in support, uh, in support of one candidate, I'll come to the opponent's fundraiser as well. I will go absolutely anywhere that I am invited to speak. So if you want to invite me, you can email me. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Appreciate you listening. Uh, It's Friday. Hopefully you're doing something fun this weekend. I'm hesitant to say this, um, but I do not have any plans today after the show. After the show, we have our post-show meeting, and I have no plans tonight. And I can't remember the last time that can be said for a Friday. And I can't tell you how excited I am about this. Maybe my wife and I will watch a movie or something or just sit and talk or read. I am really looking forward to this. And no plans. uh, I don't think we have plans tomorrow. We we probably do. But um, uh, we're going out to my sister-in-law Sharon's on Sunday for a birthday brunch. So I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully, whatever you're doing, hopefully you have a, a chance to relax a little bit. Now, I realize today... 
even though we didn't talk about it, is the one, well, the uh, caller, Maria, who unfortunately didn't get uh, any of her birthday bumper music selections played, uh, I realize today is the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, and she mentioned that, but the over the course of the last year or so, as we've seen what's gone on in Russia, I've been written to by a bunch of people that have said, well, look at what's happening with free speech in Russia. Why don't you invite Vladimir Posner back on your show to see if he still feels the same way about press freedom now as he did when you talked to him before the war? And the truth is, I have reached out to Vladimir Posner a number of times over the course of the last year to talk about the war, to talk about press freedom in Russia, to talk about a lot of things. And almost all of my emails have been ignored. But this week I said, let me email him again because it's the one-year anniversary. We'll ask him how the war is going. We'll talk to him about, you know, whatever he wants to talk about, quite frankly. He's an interesting guy, whatever you think about him. And he wrote back to me on Wednesday night. And this is what he said. Mr. Morano, it is today one year since I canceled my weekly show on Russia's national network, Channel One, and have not given a single interview. And that's the way it is going to be for the time being. Best Vladimir Posner. So Vladimir Posner, I didn't realize this because, you know, I figured he was doing some Russian language stuff has not done a single interview since this war in Ukraine started, and he canceled his own show. So, needless to say, those of you that have asked me, um, where is Vladimir Posner, or will Vladimir Posner come back? I'm not going to invite him again, because he's made clear he's not going to come on. All right. Um, um, those of you that are holding, I'm going to get to you momentarily. If you want to comment on anything at all that we have discussed so far, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. I want to begin this hour by bringing you an update on a story that we've talked about previously. Not in a while, but we have talked about it. And that is what the work week should be. Here in the United States... It's pretty conventional to have a five-day work week. But other people have speculated, especially during COVID. We heard a lot about alternative work structures and so forth. Some people have speculated, well, maybe a four-day work week is better or a three-day work week or whatever the case may be. Well, in the UK, they did a trial of a four-day work week. Shorter and, well, let me tell you what they did and how it went. So they did a trial of a four-day work week in Great Britain. This was billed as the world's largest. And they found that an overwhelming majority of the 61 companies that participated from June to December are going to keep going with the shorter hours. And that most employees were less stressed and had better work-life balances. That was all while companies reported revenue largely stayed the same during the trial period last year and even grew compared with the same six months a year earlier. That's according to findings released this week. David Frayn, who is a research associate at the University of Cambridge, who helped lead the team conducting employee interviews for the trial, said, 
We feel really encouraged by the results, which showed the many ways companies were turning the four-day week from a dream into a realistic policy with multiple benefits. We think there's a lot here that ought to motivate other companies and industries to give it a try. So the university's team worked with researchers from Boston College and a a group called Autonomy, which is a research organization focused on the future of of work. And the four-day week global nonprofit community to see how the companies from industries from – and not just one industry, many different industries, marketing, finance, nonprofits – 2,900 workers in all were studied, and they analyzed how these workers responded to reduced work hours while their pay stayed the same. Not surprisingly, employees reported benefits, with 71% less of them getting burned out, 39% less stressed, and 48% were more satisfied with their job than before the trial. Of the workers, 60% said it was easier to balance work and life responsibilities at home, while 73% reported increased satisfaction with their lives. Fatigue was down. People were sleeping more, and mental health improved significantly. And that's just what um, Platten's Fish and Chips restaurant in the English seaside town of Wells Next to the Sea, that's the name of the town, has found, especially in the hospitality industry where people often work seven days a week. So given the successful results of this trial in the UK, my question for you is, do you think this system has merit? Should we try a four-day work week here, at least on a trial basis? Or if you have a company, if you're a business owner, Would you want to try this for your employees, given the results that we're seeing? Productivity largely stays the same, and the workers are a lot happier, a lot less stressed. They're healthier. They're getting more sleep. They're more productive in a lot of ways. Do you think it has merit? Should we try this in the United States? This is a serious question. This is, in some ways, a much more serious question and a much more realistic question than the Marjorie Taylor Greene question I posed yesterday about a national divorce because this is something that businesses could start doing on their own tomorrow. Can't start a national divorce tomorrow. So the concept lets people work and have a day to do chores like cleaning the house and then have two days off, seeing your friends, seeing your family, doing some stuff yourself. And for companies that rolled out the shorter work hours, whether it was one less workday a week or longer hours in parts of the year and shorter hours the rest of the time to make an average 32-hour work week, revenue was not affected. So if that's the case, why wouldn't we try this here? Curious what you think. 800-848-9222. And if you're a worker, whatever line of work you're in, would you want a four-day work week? 800-848-9222. I, um, I like working. You know, I, I like working five days. I mean, I would love to spend more time with my family. But I think it's rare that you have someone who likes their job 
as much as I do. I mean, I love my job, honestly. This is if I got fired tomorrow, I would, uh, which I pray never occurs, I would find someone to let me do this for free, right? Uh, because that's what I would, this is what I would do for fun. And at different points in my career, it has been what I've done for free and was what I do for fun. So I, I think I'm a an exception. I think most people, it's a little bit more of a chore to do their job than me. I was talking with uh, my friend Dominic Carter about this before the show. And we we're talking about filling in for people. And you know he's a talk show host at WABC in New York for people listening around the country. And we're talking about filling in for people and how he had to fill in for me once. And he said, well, you know, the thing with you is you rarely take a, a day off. And uh, I said, yeah, I don't really have. I mean, if I have something to do, I'm taking a day off in April to go to a a bachelor party, which just is still just staggering to me. I don't know how people do this to their friends, make them travel to another city and go to all this expense. Why? To celebrate the end of your bachelorette? I just, again, this is a close friend, and uh, um, if he wants to do this, then so be it. It's just, I wouldn't do this to people. Make them kind of get inconvenienced for what? And go to all, whatever, that's a separate discussion. But for those who participated in the trial, there was a drop in the likelihood of employees quitting. It was down 57% compared with the same period a year earlier, as well as those calling out sick, down from 65% a year ago. Of the companies, 92% reported they would continue with the four-day work week. That's extraordinary. And with 30% saying it's a permanent change, that includes... Uh, Platins, I think that's the fish and chip company, which said it's sticking with the model permanently, permanently. Charlotte Lockhart, co-founder and managing director of Four Day Week Global. You know what? Maybe she's somebody worth having on the show. I'm going to make a note of that to myself. She said the results of this pilot program were resounding success and that it mirrors Earlier efforts in Ireland, which showed similar results, and the United States. They've done this. They've done these trial programs in different places in America. Now, there are, of course, industries that can't institute shorter hours because they need workers around the clock. Radio station, for instance. Uh, I would imagine hospital is in that, uh, in that vein. Nurses, first responders. Those workers and others have been walking off the job in the U.K., in recent months, demanding better working conditions and pay that keeps pace with the cost of living. The pandemic changed the way the world works, and people are seeking greater flexibility to improve work-life balances. What do you think? Should we try this? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Evelyn is in Bayonne. Hello, Evelyn. Good morning, Frank. Question for you. The UK study, did that include education, school Um, teachers? You know, in the article that I saw, it uh, it doesn't specifically say whether it included uh, academia. So I have to be honest. uh, I don't know. It's 61 companies. It says it it included, uh, uh, you know, marketing, sales, financial, and um, nonprofits. It doesn't say specifically schools in the article that I that I read. I'd have to look, dig, dig, dig a little deeper for that one. 
Well, Frank, let me tell you, if we went to a four-day work week, I would quit my job and work for a company that supported that because I'm single. And Monday comes around. I said, what happened to the weekend? Because you're so busy doing what you have to do that you don't really have quality time for yourself. So I'm in favor of it, definitely. You know, that's a great point, Evelyn. I do feel that that same way for myself. You know, I spend... So, I mean, look, again, I'm a special case because my hours are so much different than the rest of the world. But, you know, I spend almost all of um, Friday, uh, Friday into Saturday trying to recover from the week and just get a little rest. Then you spend mm-hmm. all of Saturday uh, doing chores. And then my Saturday and Sunday is all these familial and social obligations that before you, I, I have to also find time to work on the show for Monday. The whole weekend's gone. You know, and um, someone said that to me before at the station. Uh, they were leaving for the week, and they said, "But you know, it'll be a blink of an eye, and I'll be, see you Sunday night into Monday." That is a good point. Um, you really, it, it it is tough to some extent. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. What do you think? Let me say, uh, you know, Carol in New Jersey's been holding a while, and I know she called about something else. But Carol, uh, the floor is yours. Whatever you want to comment. On. Well, thank you, Frank. You know, that story about the woman down the shore that claimed that the basketball's overinflated, that's totally untrue. Because I made shots in the baskets when I was down the shore. I, my family and I used to go to Seaside, Seaside Heights. And I never had a problem. Well, Carol, I never had a problem. Carol, understand, though, what the attorney general is saying. They're saying this one specific vendor was cheating people. So it doesn't mean that all the vendors are cheating people. And that's what I said. The fact that they caught this woman um, yeah. and her company, to me, it actually gives me more confidence that the games are honest because the fact yes, that they, they are, they are mm-hmm. rooting out the dishonest actors – I thought was a uh, a good thing, but um, but yeah, th- th- this was just one specific. Yeah, vendor. you were you right about that, Frank. They said that this one woman was doing that, but I heard stories from other people too that I knew. Well, uh, they said that some of those games were fixed. Well, and, and I, I said, well, I always used to win, so. <laughs> well, I got to hang around with you next time I'm at the Jersey Shore, Carol. I'm going to see where you are. <laughs> well, I have the luck of the Irish. That's what hey, my parents said anyway. Uh, I, mar- I married an O'Brien, right? So uh, hopefully uh, hopefully right. she'll have some of that as well next time we play. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Tony is in New Jersey. Hello, Tony. Hey, Frank. I think the four-day work week is amazing. I did a four-day work week in a company that was a law firm, primarily five days because of certain circumstances and it was a bit hairy because everyone else was on a five-day work week. So if a company was all four days, I think you cut out a lot of the dead wood. You keep focused on your four days. I think it's a beautiful idea. And what Um, what I've seen... what, and I don't mean to interrupt, but what I've seen in other studies uh, or other other analyses of this is that in some cases it can actually cost the company less money because you're not paying for electric and utilities for that fifth day. Maybe you're not paying for if you have snacks and coffee and other workplace expenses just to keep the office running, especially if they're producing about the same amount of revenue. If you could save the cost of opening the office for that fifth day, why not? I think it's a great idea. You know, I, I really do, too. Uh, thank you, Tony. I think, you know, I'm not ready to flick a switch and 
uh, say we should switch to a four-day work week tomorrow. But I'd love to see more companies and more, you know, I'd love to see more companies try this and more communities try this. Uh, I'm curious how this would work out if it was tried on a broader scale, if eventually maybe productivity would decline or revenue would decline. I don't know. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Maryland. Hello, Mike. Sorry? How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Um, I, I feel that it's great. I think it would be good for me, but I wonder how deep they can really do a study on this. So the study is not going to show if you let everyone do this. I think traffic would really be bad if everyone's working, you know, somewhat the same hours, you know. Um, I think everyone dumping out of work basically at the same time. With the, the, the roads in Maryland are terrible as it is now if everyone's working pretty close to the same hours. But, I feel that it would be really bad. But, Mike, let's assume most people are not me and maybe not you if you're up at this time. Let's assume most people are working roughly nine to five in an office somewhere. That's why morning and evening rush hours and commute times are such a drag when it comes to traffic. Why do you think if you gave people off, say, Friday, for instance, why do you think that would make the traffic worse on Friday than it already is during the commute times that people go to and from work? So I'm not talking about Friday, your day off, because most likely after four tens, you're probably going to relax. You're not probably going to be on the street. But the problem is the other days, everyone's dumping out of work, most likely the same day, you know. Right, but isn't that the case already, though? Um. Yeah, but could it get worse? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. But, but Mike, maybe I'm not following. And again, by the twentieth hour of radio, maybe I get a little punch drunk. So it's it's very possible that I'm just misunderstanding. Why would it be worse? Because using a ten-hour day, most likely people are going to be working the same hours because people in, most likely. People aren't getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning to go to work. People are going to try to stay with that eight, nine hour to start work. Um, So I feel that everyone would be trying the same hours, you know. Right. It would seem to me, and, and thanks for the call, Mike. Again, I could just not be getting what he's saying. But it would seem to me it would be the same rush hour traffic. It would just be four days Instead of five. In fact, it was a point that I hadn't even considered. But that's, to me, another point in favor of this. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Lenny is in Jersey City. Hello, Lenny. All right. Lenny's got second thoughts. Paul's in Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Hey, Frank. How are you? I'm great. I I, I have a question. Good. You're losing a day's pay, though. I work 50 hours a week. No, 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 but Lenny, excuse me, Paul. Um, Paul, Paul. The, in I, I, the, I yeah, exactly. Uh, in this, good. I said, by the 20th hour of the show, uh, I get a little punch drunk. But, um, I, I you feel know, the same way after driving all night. Right, but in this that. experiment, these people did okay. not lose a day's pay. They got 
paid the same amount of money for working one day less. How? But I don't understand how. Like, I work five, 10-hour days. I work five days, 50 hours for the week. If I lose those 10 hours in a day, my check is significantly smaller. Right. Well, I, you know, I guess so I, I don't understand how that works. Right. So I guess you're you're an hourly employee, Paul. Yeah. So let's. I, I guess this is it applies to people that get paid a a flat rate. They get paid. Oh, you're talking salary then. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, that will work. Someone right. like me, I lose out because you know I I do very well, but I need my overtime. If I don't have that extra day with the old with the old you know, that'll hurt me. Yeah, I, I, I get you, Paul. Get, get back to work, as a matter of fact. 800-848-9222. E. Frank is in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yeah, Frank, you can't criticize anyone or say nothing negative about a, a situation. I think this is a total travesty that you believe that a four-day week is good for, for anyone. Well, maybe. Because I think... The Social Security Administration suffers. I think there's an obstruction of governmental administration when there's that an extra work week that produces money for and for the admin for credits in in your Social Security record. Why hold up an economy by cutting one day of work? We've always settled on a a whole week, uh, two days well, of so a weekend. Then why why not six days? Why is five days the magic number? Why not seven days? Some people do work Saturdays. I've always worked with individuals that that work uh, an extra day, which is Saturday. But I believe that cutting the work week to four days and not allowing the revenue for other issues like uh, construction, contributions to the economy. Have you recently, uh, Frank, looked at the amount of deductions that exist in the um, Internal Revenue Service uh, forms yeah, I, for child credits and uh, other things. Uh, no, not really. But E. Frank, remind me what line of work you're in again. Uh, no, I'm I'm uh, disabled at this time. But I, I was uh, a college student and a civilian volunteer for New York City Police Department. Well, but so a college student is uh, at least when I went to college it was not a paying job. And civilian volunteer or any sort of volunteer, that's not a paying job. So I guess my question is, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to put you on trial here, but are you the best judge of what a productive work week is, given that I can't tell when the last time is that you had a paying job? You know, you might say that I'm not a good example, but if you look at the statistics in general, you see the minimum wage going up. And you're reducing a work week for all people with uh, the cost of living going up. What are, actually are you doing, Frank? Well, I, again, I, I thank you, Frank. Right? I mean, the guy that's not working, and again, I don't want to, you know, the guy's disabled. I, I feel bad. But the guy that, that's not working is sitting there saying, one, the minimum wage shouldn't go up, and two, we shouldn't have a four-day work week. Does anybody else see the irony there? 800-848-9222. Lucy is in Maryland. Hello, Lucy. Yes. <laughs> Hi. I wanted to talk about the traffic. The man who was trying to make the point of so much traffic, if you go to a 10-hour day, right now some people go to work at 7, some people go to work at 8, some people go to work at 9. But if you have a 10-hour day, 
more people will be going to work at exactly the same time in order to get 10 hours but into I, I, the day. My understanding is I don't think this would go to a 10-hour day. I think it's basically just taking a standard 40-hour work week and moving it to a 32-hour work week. Well, that would be good. And I'd like to add, today's my birthday also. Oh, happy Marie. birthday, Lucy. <laughs> Hi. I, I hope all of your birthday wishes uh, come true. Now, are you aware of which famous people have the same birthday as you? No, I'm not. Not one? Everybody knows at least one. I'm sorry. I, I know that the war started on my birthday, which bothers me. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that is it. Well, um, it is, uh, it, let's see. If, so today's the 24th, right? Not the not the 23rd. Well, uh, today, the 24th, is the mm-hmm. birthday of none other than Steve Jobs, you know, who, the, oh. the founder of Apple, right? Yeah. And um, you have also Floyd Mayweather, the boxer, Floyd Mayweather Jr., mm-hmm. And um, the, uh, let's see, who else do you have uh, for today? Abe Vigoda from The Godfather, uh, who was uh, <laughs> Tessio in The Godfather. It's his birthday today. And, uh, you know, a bunch of other interesting people. But those are, the, oh, and Dominic Kianese, also from The Godfather. It's his birthday mm. as well. So you got some, you got some good folks today. Well, good. It's good to know. What are you doing for, the, for your birthday? Any plans? Well, uh, there's going to be a little party in the neighborhood. One of my friends is is having some people over for my birthday. Oh, that's nice. Well, good. I hope you have fun. Also, it was Honus Wagner's birthday. Honus Wagner, the Hall of Fame baseball player, who has his Uh baseball card is one of the most valuable cards, if not the most valuable card in history. It was his birthday today as well. So, oh, you know whose birthday it is tomorrow. Who? Yours? No, no, it's not. Um, The great Ric Flair, uh, my favorite pro wrestler. Well, I did not know that. Yeah, well, you (laughs) you know, next year maybe you guys do a joint party and uh, and hopefully I'll get invited. Lucy, thank you very much for the call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Michael is calling from his bedroom. Hello, Michael. Hey, Frank. Um... I have no idea how an accounting firm could set up a four-day work week, how a law firm could set up a four-day work week and say that you're accomplishing the same amount of work in four days, uh, keeping the same hours, four days, chopping off one full day of work. I cannot see that happening. I'll tell you Uh, what I think it is. I think it's a function of uh, people goof off and stand around less when there's only four days. And I think it's a a function of people being better rested and more productive on the days they're showing up to work. So then are you saying that uh, working for an accounting firm, you're saying you can generate as many tax returns in four days Assuming it's an eight-hour day, um, in four days, 
or in a law firm, you're turning out as much work. Yes, in yes. Four uh, well, days I think that's exactly what five days. That's I think that's exactly what this pilot program and the one in Ireland and the ones in America show that yes, because the workers are more productive and they're not spending time standing around talking to their coworkers at the coffee machine, they're they're more likely to make the the even though it's eight fewer hours per week. They make those 32 hours count for more. So, yes, I think that's – and that, and my answer is maybe. Let's try it at, in a broader experiment in this country and see how it works out. Let's see. 800-848-9222. There's all sorts of things that don't take as much time as they actually take. You know, I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but – I have a lot of friends that are lawyers, a lot of friends that are law professors, a lot of friends that are judges. And so I've spent a lot of time talking about the legal profession, a lot of family members that are lawyers, too, that have I've spent a lot of time talking about the legal profession with people. And do you know what every lawyer tells me? Law school can be two years. There's no need for that that third year of law school. The third year of law school exists for law schools to make money, right? And you could do it in two years. You could absolutely do it in two years. So it's the same principle. Are you telling me you can get the same legal education in two years that you can do three? Yes. Yes. And I think if you take a look at how much time's being wasted by a lot of workers, I think it's not that difficult to conceptualize maybe... They can get it done in four days. All right, I want to do. We'll take one or two more calls on this. Those of you that are holding, you're welcome to hold. But then um, we have to do the thousand dollar minute. Jeff is in Boston. Hello, Jeff. Hi, I live in Massachusetts, where if you work for government, you already have a four day work week because they have created all these extra holidays: Evacuation Day, Bunker Hill Day, Patriots Day. And I think if you were to do this idea. What would happen is the, the the government people would really be all set. They have four days. But if you work at a bank or if you work at a service company, a retail, you're not going to get any benefit at all. So the, hmm. the, the important people get the benefit and the little people get nothing. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's an interesting perspective. Thank you, Jeff. So why did I write down the word Charlotte? Jeez, I can't uh, I can't figure out. I mean, I was making notes to myself of things that I wanted to make sure to mention because I'm rapidly running out of time. And I wrote down the word Charlotte. What? Why did I write down the word Charlotte? Now, of course, the irony there is that that is one of the names of one of Joe Piscopo's children. So am I right? Am I just randomly writing down the name of Joe Piscopo's children because I've so committed them to memory? I don't know. But um, or is it because that's Ric Flair's daughter's name? Or is it for some other reason? I can I don't know why I wrote down Charlotte. Did I say anything about Charlotte at all? I don't think I did. So that's weird. All right, 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, you're welcome to continue to hold. I will get to your calls. 
Uh, happy birthday to Joe Lieberman as well, recent guest on this program. He is 81 years old today. Happy birthday, Senator Lieberman. And uh, if you want your chance at winning $1,000, oh, okay, I, I wrote it down because that was the woman who um, who did this study, okay, who, who was with this four-day work week challenge, Charlotte Lockhart. Okay, not losing it. I said, let me make a note to interview her, and I wrote down and literally made a note as I was speaking. Okay, those of you that are about to haul me off to the – Looney bin, no need. Call off the call off the uh, people that were coming. Now, uh, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222, and you'll have a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, you'll be $1,000 richer. Simple as that. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in then I watch him roll away again, yeah. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. Ooh, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, wasting time. Otis Redding, sitting on the dock of a bay. Um, this was a birthday bumper music selection because this week was the birthday of Diana McCoy. Now, uh, Diana is a wonderful young woman. She's also the daughter of former New York Lieutenant Governor and healthcare expert and New York Post columnist Betsy McCoy, formerly Betsy McCoy Ross. Diana is her daughter and uh, a wonderful lady in her own right. And uh, she celebrated her birthday this week. Speaking of birthdays, I mentioned that uh, yesterday was Susan Rochester Zaccone's birthday. And I was incorrect. It was actually today. So we were a little bit ahead of the game on uh, on that. And uh, I wanted to wish as well a happy birthday to Brian Peroni, who is uh, celebrating his birthday today as well. Uh, or either today or yesterday. It, this time of day, you kind of get confused. No, it's today, right. So, Brian Peroni, happy birthday, and uh, we played the Summer Wind in his honor yesterday, and we might have uh, a few other birthday bumper music suggestions for him. He is, um, he's got Arthur Avenue Pizza, and they came in here, they brought some frozen pizza. I tried it, it was great. Gave some to uh, John Katzmatidis, it was, uh, it was, it was phenomenal as well. So he's a great guy. We, he actually invited me to Rayo's one time, and we had a great time at Rayo's. A wonderful guy, Brian Peroni. Happy birthday. Hope all your wishes come true, as I do with everybody who's celebrating a birthday today. State Senator John Bramnick, Irene Cornell. Those of you that are New York area radio listeners may remember Irene Cornell from when she was on uh, 880. She's terrific. And uh, everybody as well. All right. 
without further ado, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Let us say hello to Tom on Long Island. Hello, Tom. Hi, how you doing? I'm great, Tom. Tom, you've heard this contest before? I have. Great, so you know what to do, right? Yep. Okay, let's get started. Name a type of soda. Pepsi. What former running back and actor was found not guilty of killing his wife in 1995? O.J. Simpson. What Renaissance artist painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? Michelangelo. Who played Elaine on Seinfeld and Selena Meyer on Veep? Juliet Lewis. We'll give you that. Yeah, okay, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, right. Who was Eisenhower's vice president? Nixon. What state does Dianne Feinstein represent in the U.S. Senate? California. What is the perimeter of a circle called? Circumference. What planet is closest to the sun? Mercury. What is the name of the tallest grass on Earth? Ah, you were doing great. Uh, It is bamboo. The tallest grass on earth is bamboo. You got eight correct. You lost on the ninth. Um, Matt Blaze, does that qualify, Tom, for some some money? No, we don't don't give a prize for eight. It's just, uh, okay, so he gets a magnet, though, at least. All right, I'm going to put you on hold, uh, Tom, uh, and we'll give Kenneth your information. So, Matt Blaze, update me on what the latest rules are, because there was a time when that would have qualified him for some money. Why does that not now? What are the current rules? The rules have changed that the only monetary prize is if you get all 10 questions right. I see, because that's how it was, and then we changed it at the behest of of our owner, who said we should, if people get eight or nine right, that they should get a, a consolation prize. Correct. And then they changed the rules. Those rules had run out. And then when they redid the rules, it was decided that only 10 questions right get a monetary prize. And now we have now made a new rule or a new, new consolation prize of a magnet if you, if you lose, if you don't right. win. So well, maybe we can put this That's on where our... it stands. Okay. Well, so I'm sorry you didn't win any money, Tom. But a very impressive uh, performance nonetheless. You know what, though? And I'm going to bring this up in our post-show meeting if we're having it today. And look, the rules are the rules, right? They're on the website. You can look at them. But uh, I feel like if you get eight questions correct, you shouldn't get the same prize as someone that gets two questions correct. Right? I mean, that doesn't seem yeah. fair. I mean, and Tom got them quick. He rattled those questions off. Yeah, it, it, it was getting close. I mean, in time-wise, he, he was getting about five, six seconds left when he got that one wrong. Right. If he was a little quicker on Nixon and Julia and Louis-Dreyfus, yeah. I, well, I think he would have had time to get to all all, uh, all ten of them. But And, um, and interestingly, interestingly enough, mm. Kenneth knew Bamboo. Did he? He did. But, but right did, away. did he know the other seven questions? No, he didn't know the vice president. Yeah, see, that that's the thing. That's the thing with the $1,000 minute. You have to know a little bit about everything. And Kenneth does not, apparently.
All right, 800-848-9222. An impressive performance, though, I must say, uh, from uh, from Tom there. Uh, all right, 1-800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, I will get to you. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to comment on this before the week ends. You know, the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl, the big game. They won the championship. And they had this big parade. And a lot of the players would, you know, hang out. They'd have beer. It's a very festive atmosphere. And they're partying and they're celebrating. And the Kansas City Star published a series of letters to the editor uh, last Sunday that criticized the Chiefs players for drinking and for drinking excessively during their parade and for using the arrowhead chop A submission from Janet Elaine Hensel, who lives in Missouri, wrote that the team's ownership and head coach Andy Reid should have prohibited alcohol during the parade, while Hensel said, look like a college fraternity beer bust. Quote, if the Chiefs cannot go a few hours without alcohol, the organization has a problem. I, for one, was sickened to see this for the second time. Some chiefs even brag through social media about how drunk they were afterwards. I'm ashamed that players I cheered for could barely walk after they got off the bus. No doubt this spectacle made the news in other cities. Here's a little bit of um, the chiefs parade and uh, Pat Mahomes, the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, the son of the former New York Mets pitcher who, of course, has done just phenomenally well for his age. And he was in the parade with his WWE custom-made championship belt, which they gave him. And this was uh, this was uh, Pat Mahomes. Hey, we just want to say we appreciate everybody that's here today. We're back again. We're back again. Before we started this season, the AFC West said we were rebuilding. I'm be honest with you, I don't know what rebuilding means. In our rebuilding year, we're world champs. We're world champs. And Mahomes, they say he was slurring his words a bit there. And honestly, that doesn't sound like how he normally sounds. He might have been a bit, bit drunk. But... He was drinking, he had a can of Coors Light beer, and he was drinking Coors Light beer along the parade route. I'm wondering, do you think that's appropriate for athletes, championship athletes, in a parade to be partying with alcohol openly? And the whole city, the whole world, really, is watching this parade. Is it okay? I mean, look. Football is something a lot of young people aspire to. Does that send a poor message to have these professional athletes drinking alcohol during the parade and showing all these young people, yeah, this is how you celebrate, by getting drunk publicly? Now, my ad- I get what the person is saying here. My attitude is that it's okay. I-, I think it's not a big deal, right? How often do you win the Super Bowl? You win the Super Bowl, I think you should be entitled to go out and party like crazy, even if that involves alcohol. And yes, you know, maybe even some some public drinking. I don't think this is a puritanical society 
And if, uh, you know, when she was saying, what it is, what does it say about an organization? I mean, it says whatever this organization is doing, it's working pretty well because they won the Super Bowl again. Um, that's my take. Not only that, how many beer commercials are there during the Super That's Bowl? That's the other thing. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that, right? I mean, so what we're really saying is, okay, we're okay with the constant flow of beer commercials, not just during the Super Bowl, but during the regular season as well. But we're going to see a player drinking beer during the championship parade, and that's what's going to offend our sensibilities? I'm curious if people have a different view, because I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And Eight, Frank, if you... 800 if you look, too, at the World Series, they're popping champagne bottles on champagne bottles in the clubhouse, well, and they show yeah. it on TV. Yeah, I mean, I think How many this, of those guys are getting drunk after the win? Yeah, I think this applies. Just, just, I'm sure she would have said the same thing if this was the Kansas City Royals as, as well. But, look, I'm sure there are people that agree with the letters here. It was not just one letter. It was multiple. I just highlighted one. But what do you think of that? I think, uh, I think it's no big deal. No big deal at all. 800-848-9222. By the way, I have figured out a way to beat the egg inflation crunch that we're all dealing with. And that is to have my Aunt Camille make egg salad and give it to you for free. Uh, I uh, picked up a batch of my Aunt Camille's egg salad yesterday. Absolutely delicious. If there's any left, I'm going to bring it in. Uh, Sunday night into Monday. It's phenomenal. And I asked her if she was going to be affected by the inflation situation at all. And she says, no. She says, no matter what it costs, she's still making the egg salad. So I was eating eggs again, courtesy of my Aunt Camille. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Ed is on Staten Island. Hello. Hello. Listen, in 2001, I spent New Year's Eve in Rio de Janeiro. And uh, we were leaving the hotel. My buddy walked out with a beer. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? He goes, it's Brazil. Nobody cares. <laughs> so it's only it's only like a, a New York thing where everybody's uptight. And well, the rest I mean, of the world doesn't, doesn't really care. Well, this was Missouri, not New York, but f- fair enough. Vinny is in Toronto. Hello, Vinny. Uh, it's it's Tarentum, Frank. But what I wanted to say is sometimes that's the only thing them guys could do for pain is have a beer. Well, they weren't doing it to medicate any sort of injury. Let's be clear. They were doing it to party, right? I mean, they were doing it to celebrate. Dave is in Connecticut. Hello, Dave. Hello, Frank. Yes, Dave. Hey, good good evening. Morning. Morning, Uh, Tomorrow, I guess it's that. Well, Dave, this has been fascinating. Thank you. All right. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. If you want to be heard for 15 seconds, um, you can do so at 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Randy B., whose memory is kept alive on this program through the playing of this song, passed away recently due to uh, Parkinson's, and we miss him. He was a great, great asset to this show, both as a caller and, uh, and musically as well. All right, uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. We also want to encourage you to join the Facebook group. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano, where you can join the uh, the chorus of critics that uh, comment on the show. Jerry, for instance, right, writes, um, uh, Frank, do you really need the $1,000 minute rules explained to you again and again? No wonder you flunked the driver exam twice. Well, Jerry, first of all, as you heard from Matt, the rules keep changing. Benedetto writes, Frank, I agree with you. Cutting to a four-day work week. You should start by getting 20 hours material into 16 hours. Run this by Mr. Katz. This will give you more time to volunteer to speak at fundraisers, although you state you need to spend more time with your family. You are so out of touch and delusional, you are an adult with a child's mind. Thank you, Benedetto. Hal writes, I'm listening to a discussion on helium-3 energy on the moon and ice on the moon and uh, on WOR's George Norrie, while Frank Morano talks about votes and politics again. First, I wasn't talking about votes and politics at all, I don't think. Two, is that really the problem with this program, is a lack of space talk? We do a lot of space talk today. I mean, in, in not only today, always. All right, without further ado. The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Victor! Yeah, if if you listen carefully to recordings by Jerry Vale and Victor Moan, you'll hear the voice of none other than Eddie Fisher. Vale and Damone only performed in public. Tommy! I'm wondering if the sale of the uh, ventilators for scrap is legit. Uh, the ventilators are probably going to be sold, and I think the scrap story is just a sham. And finally, Ray. Uh, forever, I'm perplexed every time... E. Frank has a thought. A thousand dollar minute question. Tiger Woods was tied with Sam Snead for PGA Tour win. Right. We, we would have accepted either answer. All right. Thank you. <clears throat> that slams the lid on things for today. I'm going to be back Monday at 1 a.m. Eastern with none other than Ernie Anastas. Very much looking forward to talking with him. Uh, until then, Frank Moreno, good day. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.